Welcome back to Word Balloon, the comic book conversation show. John Suntress here. Great double feature for you today. We're going to have Alesh Kot on. Alesh has a new book out this week called Wolf. Uh, from Image Comics. He also has a great series called Material. We talk about those, his wrap-up to Bucky Barnes, The Winter Soldier, coming up, and uh, why he's focusing on his creator-owned books and less on the big two, DC and Marvel. That's in part one of Word Balloon. Part two, we're going to be talking to Arlen Schumer. You know Arlen from uh, his book, uh, The Silver Age of Comic Book Art, and uh, it's great stuff. Uh, He has an interesting uh, presentation that he's been doing at uh, conventions like San Diego Comic-Con. Coming up, he'll be doing it at the Connecticut Con, but uh, there is a New York exhibit of a great DC creator that has gone forgotten, but uh, people like Arlen are bringing him back. Irish Schnapp, who is celebrating his 120th uh, birthday this year, a very important creator from the 30s, 40s, and 50s, and 60s. And we talk about his contributions to DC over those decades in part two of Word Balloon. It's all brought to you today by InStock Trades at InStockTrades.com, where you'll get great deals on amazing trade paperbacks, hardcovers, and absolute editions, omnibuses, and more. We'll go into detail a little bit later in the show, but Word Balloon is also brought to you by the Cincy Comic Con happening September 12th and 13th at the Northern Kentucky Convention Center. Uh, I'm looking forward to this show, as I do every year. Word Balloon is a big part. I get to uh, moderate a lot of the panels and uh, go over uh, some ideas for different discussions that we're going to have. Great lineup, as usual. Uh, Of course, Tony Moore is going to be there. And uh, Tony, Rick Remender, and Mike Hawthorne are going to be celebrating the 10th anniversary of Fear Agent. We're going to see Cameron Stewart, the Batgirl creator, Brendan Fletcher, the wonderful uh, creator on Black Canary. Fables will be well represented by its writers, guys like Bill Willingham, Matthew Sturgis, and Chris Robertson. Of course, Chris, the co-creator of iZombie as well. Uh, A whole bunch of great creators are going to be there. Kevin McGuire, Ming Doyle, Evan Dorkin. Ryan Brown, Chris Burnham, Sean Crystal, Matthew Clark, Mike Norton, Mike Morisi, Jim Mafood, Jeff Parker, Eric Powell, Phil Noto, Mark Schultz, Chris Sprouse, Johnny Ryan, Ben Templesmith, Ray Fox is going to be there. Derek Robertson is going to be there. Also, Mark Kidwell, Sarah Dyer. Uh, you won't want to miss it. Buy original art, get sketches. They have a great artist alley and a great comic store and memorabilia section as well. I hope I'll see you there at Cincy Comic Con. And if you want more details, go to their website, CincyComicCon.com. All right, let's get things started and uh, pick up our conversation with Alesh Kot. Uh, I'm happy to have him back and talking about a couple of his new creator-owned projects in particular. I'm really loving material, and he was kind enough to give me this week's copy of Wolf. And, uh, man, what a great first issue and a really nice, you know, uh, 50 pages of story to start you off with. That's fantastic. So uh, enjoy it and enjoy this conversation with Alesh Kot, now on Word Balloon. Happy to uh, welcome Alesh Kot back to Word Balloon. I got him to uh, push away from the laptop for a second and... uh, talk about uh, current books and also uh, books on the horizon. Welcome back, Alesh. Hi, John. It's a pleasure to be back. Well, it's uh, a pleasure to talk to you again. It's been, it's been a while, and uh, all you've done in the meantime is uh, crank out some more cool, uh, provocative books. I, uh, I, I like the through line that I see in a lot of your stuff. And in fact, I noticed in prepping, I always read what everybody else writes about uh, the various uh, subjects I'm going to cover just to see if you know there's uh, areas to go into. And I happen to notice that in describing Wolf and really your view of, of what we perceive, because Wolf is this combination of uh, the real world and the supernatural, you kind of reference something that you also put into material 
in that, uh, and I forget whose theory it is, that we essentially only perceive about 3% of, of what really surrounds us. And uh, you, you're going to be more eloquent at it than I am, so feel free to you know, expound on that. But I like the through line regardless. Huh, yeah, um, that's <laughs> definitely there. <laughs> well, I was hoping you'd describe the theory, and, and you know, if I'm if I'm getting it wrong, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, <laughs> the theory is really rather. It's not even a theory. I think it's pretty much it's pretty much something that has been scientifically proven that we're basically perceiving a very limited amount of information in the universe. Um, you know, and in terms of visible light, we see something like three percent of it. There's ninety-seven percent of things around us we don't see. Understood. Um, and that really puts things in perspective because I don't feel like I really was a very aware person until I realized how little I know. And that even by learning seemingly a lot, maybe, you know, in however long I will live, I might still not do more than sort of scratch the surface of uh, everything that can be perceived around us. And that's sort of liberating, you know? It's like um, people essentially, there is no meaning, and people give life meaning depending on what they decide for, you know? And ideally, they're aware of life having no meaning so they can take charge of whatever meaning they imbue it with. And that connects with just sort of looking at, you know, life as this sort of chaotic force that has its own internal order within it. But at the same time, as to what happens with the chaos, how we perceive it, how we work with it, those things come from, I believe, at least to a certain extent, our own decisions and our own decisions to give meaning to what we are perceiving. And uh, the more we perceive, maybe the more likely we are to actually work with the world and with the universe in ways that are not harmful and that are actually um, creative. So approaching chaos from that perspective, because, you know, chaos is essentially was probably at the beginning of it all together with order, means that if we accept them both, we might be in a much better place as people. So that's what I'm trying to do for myself. And uh, that's what I've been trying to do for years. And I think I'm getting better and better at it. But I'm, you know, I, uh, big part of it is just knowing that I really don't know anything. I don't, I, I barely know, I barely know who I am on a day to day basis. And even that is just a very bare, understanding of who I am, you know, whether it's ego, whether it's something else, where do I end and something else begins, um, you know, are my microbes partially what actually gives me my thoughts and my sense of identity, or are some of the fungi that are living inside us, which we <laughs> have something like seven to ten types of fungus in our yes. body, uh -huh. you know, like what are they doing? And Sure. How, how do we understand all these things? Why do we use dogmatic dogma essentially to describe the world when our entire perception of the world as it is is decidedly non-dogmatic by its core? We can't really. There's no room for dogma once you realize that everything is flowing and uh, we don't know much. 
well, and it, you, and it's funny because I was going to ask you, and you've just answered it. If that frightens you, or you see it as creative opportunity, and and also you know a view of life as well, and it comes through in your work. And that's the thing I could see it. I was wondering if you know things like uh, wolf and material are coming from uh, a sense of fear, or also just accepting. What we don't know, like you said, and just leaving yourself open, and it it seems to make you want to go down these different alleys and just you know observe and and figure things out as we go, and that's that's great. Well, it's it's really both. Okay, it's um you know I think that one of the really interesting things about life that I've realized in the past few years is that life is really parado- paradox, mm-hmm. that it's a massive paradoxical force that changes constantly and that has uh, the opposites within itself. You know, and obviously this links up to uh, plenty of um, different spiritual understandings of our world. Also plenty of scientific ways of understanding our world or at least straining towers understanding of our world. Right, attempts to figure it out. Yeah, and you know, I live with that. I live with fear. I live with the I live with the other parts of it too, and they are combining. And I use all of them because you know that was pretty much the core of the book is that everything is material. So I'm sort of just taking out whatever feels right at the moment. Well, and I know in Wolf, uh, those are kind of again, it's this real world kind of detective story with uh, in L.A. Uh, lots of supernatural things going on, uh, both uh, a- as he investigates and to himself. Um, when does that first issue come out? It's coming out next week. It's next week. All right, fantastic. Well, yeah. we'll make sure this comes out then before Wednesday. But 60 pages for a first issue, which I think is great, um, because sometimes there isn't enough room to really kind of lay it all out in that first 20 pages. Or, you know, obviously you guys, uh, when you do an image book, you guys dictate what you want to do. And is that why, I mean, did you really feel you needed this hunk, or would you have been happier to maybe cut it in half? Oh, no, no, no. I'm really happy with it. I mean, it's as, exactly as you said. It's completely my decision. And, you know, I mean, Image will advise, but they will, but they are very supportive of my vision and have always been. And my take on that is that, you know, I first wrote a 28 or 30 page script and I was sort of happy with it. Then I realized that I wanted to write an extra epilogue that would be extra eight pages. Um that got completely cut out by the way. Um <laughs> Okay. Um then we did that and then I was sort of toying around with the idea of maybe adapting Wolf as a TV thing and I sort of wrote a pilot that was very much wrapped around the same things. And then I looked back and I was like, you know what, parts of the pilot would be really good if they were actually in the comic. Why don't I go back and why don't I ask the co-creators if they're cool with me rewriting this so I make it bigger. And so we went back and we did that and we made the solicitation bigger and uh, obviously it's been a lot of work and, uh, you know, I'm sure that... Uh, I'm sure that it's not something that's very usual, especially not in a time where companies don't have problems asking us uh, for 5.99 for a 20-page comic. But 
I don't really believe in that. So I wanted to do something cool. I wanted to do something that really fit the story and really fit what I wanted to do. And I also just like impressing people. <laughs> I just really enjoy being like, yeah, like, yeah, this this guy knows what he's doing. He's actually trying to push the medium forward. He's trying to push the industry practices forward. Why not? Why not do that? You know, and I mean, that's obviously egotistic, but I'm okay with it. I love my ego. <laughs> Are retailers responding from zero to material to wolf? And, and, and also before that, and forgive me, um, because I didn't read Wild, Wild, what is it? Wild, Wild, Wild Children, excuse me. So, yeah, I mean, you know, that's the thing. A first issue, four ninety nine. you know, have you, have you built up enough good cred that, you know, how, how were the pre-orders for issue one? Were you satisfied? Oh, the pre-orders are very nice, yeah. Um, they're actually uh, a couple thousand or a few thousand better than I hoped. Fantastic. Um, and I hoped for a pretty high number. So, I mean, we're looking at something over 20,000. So Terrific. That's great, man. Um, Consider yeah. I'm on the start of my, um, what? I'm at the end of my third year in comics as a professional Right. I'm pretty content with it, especially considering how much I can piss some people off. Um, <laughs> what do they say? What are the people that that get pissed off at you? What are your critics saying to you? Oh, God. Are you not on the but Internet? Why? Well, you know, honestly, dude, I don't pay attention to message oh, boards or comments and I stuff. Do. I do. No, I Google myself all the time. You're self-assured, and, and obviously, and you just admitted it yourself and everything, and that's okay. But, yeah, I'm curious. So... What do they say? Oh, I mean, it can really go from pretty much. I don't really want to pay much attention to it because people, okay. uh, people on the internet and people are not on the internet. If they complain about something, they will complain about something. Um, I feel like the crux of it with one big part of the comics community is that uh, comics commu- community, despite putting on a better face and in certain ways changing rapidly in great ways. Um, is not really used to having voices that don't pander to it in some way. To the to the majority, to the fans, to the fans, and and no, even 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 to the stores. And um, I don't believe in pandering to people. I don't believe in sucking up to them. I believe in being honest and doing honest work and standing up for what I believe. And, you know, hopefully attracting the readers and and retailers who believe in the same things that I put out through the work and through my behavior. And, you know, sometimes that means uh, getting in trouble with other people because they disagree with my ideas, you know, whether it's the... Uh, whether it's something that's political or whether it's uh, just the way my comics read, you know, which really, I mean, everything is sort of about politics for me in one way or another, even if it's not obvious, uh, even if it's <laughs> obvious in in the script or in the in the comic itself. So the essence as well, uh, absolutely. Man. I accept whatever people want to say. I'll I'll correct them if they are making assumptions about me that I know are for a fact wrong. And otherwise, I don't spend much time on it. You know, ultimately, I want to be loved by everyone, just like everyone else. Probably, you know? <laughs> sure. I really want people to like me. I really want everyone to like me. But I know that I have to do me and. Uh, 
stand up for what I believe is right and do what I believe is right. And that is uh, making work that doesn't um, necessarily do that thing that Warren Ellis once described as give them what they want. Understood. No, and absolutely. I, I think I like your unique voice. It, uh, Thanks. I, in the, in, just in, in terms of if people haven't read your stuff, I see elements or at least um, – going in the same directions as uh, guys like Brian Wood and John Hickman have with their creator-owned stuff in, in that it's a unique perspective. And like I said, just to kind of, you know, uh, uh, put you in some, some sort of category for just reference of, you know, to point people and say, oh, maybe maybe they would like it if they've liked what Hickman and Wood have done before. But I, uh, I appreciate uh, the artist choices that you make. And I do, I mean, God, Bucky, and we'll get to Bucky later, but uh, visually, as well as story-wise and stuff, it is a trip, and it is a great kind of sci-fi comic that you know feels like it would have worked just as well in heavy metal or uh, earlier uh, Marvel epic illustrated and stuff. And I think that's great. And the last thing they expected from Cap's sidekick, even though he's going into space and stuff, and I think you've just taken Bucky in a very interesting direction, far from what Brubaker and Jason uh, Latour were doing with the character before you started it. Um, that's that's great. And these books, and again, back to Wolf, um, you've got a detective in L.A. who uh, is on fire when we first see him, which is great. Um, and it kind of you know sets up what this character is capable of, the world that he's in. And uh, there are elements of classic noir and supernatural. Um, but uh, I think also, you know, I don't know why, but I, I got a little Ray Donovan feel from Wolf. Even though he's more of a classic detective rather than a, a criminal fixer the way Donovan is. I don't know if that was in your mind when, when you were char- creating this character. Well, not really, because I never watched Ray Donovan. I only watched okay. the pilot episode. Uh, the li- you only watched what? I only watched the pilot episode just a few, like, few weeks ago. Um, Funny. So, yeah, not really, but I mean, you know, it's an archetype in a certain way, you know, um, the, the thing, the thing to figure out is how to, how to make sure that the archetype is also a character and a person, you know, and how not to dumb it down so it feels just like, um, this thing that you've already seen and that is just going by the numbers based on some sort of a myth or some sort of a story, you know, the, idea that the characters just need to move whatever plot says they should do and so on and so on to me it's pretty ancient and wrong because not that everything being ancient everything ancient is wrong but in this specific instance it is and um wolf is really about the border between reality and myth and, uh, you know, being on the cusp between them and seeing that there is necessarily no cusp, that they are both blending constantly. And, and looking at uh, my approach to writing Wolf and the other characters, that's something I very much identify with because we get the mythical side immediately, you know. I mean, you know, he's a guy who not only burns mostly to death while singing and then, you know, suddenly is around again, but also is uh, obviously a part of a tradition that of, you know, street magicians and uh, paranormal detectives and standard detectives, you know, like, you know, Marlowe and like, you know, Dashiell Hammett's characters and like John Constantine and sure, plenty sure. more. 
Um, so that archetypal side of it, that's obviously there, but the, how to marry that with a side that's uh, real and human, I don't even know how it happened. I just knew that it's something that I have to think about every day with you know every single person I write. Um, they have to be real. They have to feel real. They can't feel like they have like they're perfectly defined in all the ways, you know, like it's, it's one of those classics failure, classic failures of Western plot to me when everyone's so well described and mathematically precise in how they react to things and plot and everything that there's no life in them. It's, um, it's something that John Cassavetes was really, really good at. Um, he was really good at leaving life in uh, in his work and leaving life in the characters that he directed. And uh, obviously that goes to the actors too, but a large part of it is due to his approach and due to him focusing on not wanting to have artificiality of the plot hijack a movie that is essentially about people. And at the core of it, um, every single one of my comics, in order to resonate and feel real, has to be about people or has to be about, you know, other beings. It has to be about emotion and uh, life first. I can appreciate that, and I see that in material as well. We'll get to material in a second, because those are really, it seems like, a few different distinct stories that are that are moving, I'm, I'm guessing, moving towards uh, possibly getting together. Maybe not. We'll get to material, though. But Wolf, uh, you're, Wolf, is a, Wolf is a person of color. It's not fair to say African-American, because really, we don't know who Wolf is. He is, as you say, uh, one of these myths, as he is told uh, in, the, in the comic itself, by uh, some, some of the people that are pushing him forward in his journey. So, uh, you know, yeah, and that's, it was good to see uh, that obviously there's diversity in the book. But, yeah, what was your decision in terms of uh, making Wolf uh, not your, you know, not the white guy walking around trying to figure stuff out? Um, well, first of all, I'm really tired of white people. <laughs> and I'm saying that as a white person. I'm just generally fucking tired of white people. I'm tired of whiteness. I'm tired of people pretending that it's fucking Victorian England. <laughs> it, I understand, it, it doesn't reflect the world I live in. It doesn't reflect the people I interact with. Um, sure. It just like I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm tired of of racism and institutionalized abuse of many different forms that we see on everyday level, you know, and a large part of what Wolf is about as we go on and on is really uh, the prison industrial complex, which is pretty much exactly what slavery used to be. We are pretending that slavery doesn't exist, but it's very fucking alive in the United States and everywhere, um, almost everywhere. And... To live with that and, you know, to, to contemplate that every day, obviously I will never have a full experience of what it means to be a person in color, of a person of color. But what I do have and is a responsibility to make space to some extent. It's, it's uh, to listen to make space for other voices than me, for voices that are not overwhelmingly white. Mm -hmm. And 
it's also my responsibility to just, you know, get out of the way when when it's right to do that, which is one of the reasons why you don't see me writing, you know, the Marvel uh, announcements uh, with the characters that are people of color right now, because I feel like, especially considering what comes with what comes with all that, I would like to see major companies take more responsibility in that manner. Um, in regards to that, I'm also figuring out some ways of taking more responsibility in regards to that other than turning out gigs. But I do think that it's important to do that when you feel that it's right. Um, I have to educate myself every day. You know, I have to remember that it's not some sort of a white savior thing, but that it's just a matter of helping that it's a matter of seeing when I can help, you know, if, and if I can do something small and then get out of the way, that's what I want to do. And to me to write a book with a white protagonist or a white, like white cisgender male right now, um, Unless it's the surface, which is primarily like primarily really a dive into my psyche, as is pretty clear after the third issue, or unless it's parts of the material where the whiteness is in direct contrast to um, how people of color have it in the book, which obviously is just a start a starting point of the book and not the entire you know word on it. Sure. But but it's definitely a part that I've integrated since the beginning. Um. I need to do more. I feel like I need to do more, you know, and sometimes that really means just listening and paying attention and educating myself. Sometimes it also means um, engaging on a fictional level. I don't subscribe to the notion that white people shouldn't write uh, characters that are non-white. Um, I think that that's, um, while I feel like I at least partially understand the anger and the displeasure that comes uh into that sort of an equation and I'm not going to be here telling other people that they are wrong about it. I don't believe in it personally, so I'm not following that sort of logic, Mm -hmm. but I am, I am following the sort of creative logic that says, if you want to write something about an experience that is not decidedly yours, you better fucking educate yourself really well. You do, you never stop search and you always be open to change and always be open to learning more. And Wolf is really coming from that territory and, you know, material even more so. Material is overtly in that territory. Wolf um Wolf is more ridiculous in in certain sure. ways, you know. Mm-hmm. But Yeah, yeah, it's really more of it. It was the prison industrial complex. We're looking at that and going, you know, fuck it. Like it feels like it's, it's in. It was always in the book. It was always one of the core parts of the book. And I also think that, you know, all these archetypes of street magicians that I've ever seen were white. And okay. I was like, I'm not, I just don't want to see another fucking white person in <laughs> in comics uh, that like is is just filling up space because of a lack of imagination of the people behind it. Like, I want to do something different, and I don't want to do something different just to stand out from the crowd or something like that. I want to do it because I feel that it's right to do that. 
there's comedy balanced with, you know, some of these bigger issues that you're putting into this book as well. And you can't help it when you've got monsters talking to, uh, to Wolf, both, uh, you know, uh, people of conflict and also allies in this story. Um, I no, I think, I think it's a, a great start. And I really do think that, uh, people will know after those 60 pages, if they want to continue with you on, on this journey, but I think it's great. I, I like the level of, uh, magic that is in there, both a street magician's, ma- you know, standpoint of magic and real, uh, you know, or at least powers. Um, and also the idea of, well, we don't know, is it science or is it magic? I guess that's up to how much we know. Uh, and and what kind of science we can apply to it? Otherwise, it could be magic, and that's that's kind of fun to to you know explore as well. So yeah, I think I think you're off to a great start, and I think it's a it's a, a really interesting book, and uh, certainly we discover a character at the very end of the first book that will I think uh, raise the stakes and uh, make us interested in learning more about this character in the next book. Huh. So yeah, that definitely happens, and we pretty much follow up on it immediately. And as far as the you know the the division between magic and science, you know, like those divisions are false. Like I don't believe in those divisions anymore because I believe that there's you know magic and science and there's science and magic. Those things are really very similar. It's just a, there, the difference between them is just what we see and what we don't. You know, science is what we see and feel we can explain, but it's still completely changing all the time as we discover more. So. Magic, yeah, sure, magic works. You know, if I write something and I write it with an intent to make something manifest and a week later it manifests in my life, does it mean that um, it's magic or that it's science? I've done it a few times already. Um, Well, I think it's both because I am not able to describe the mechanism, but even if the mechanism is simply... um, based in me writing a piece of fiction that affects my unconscious and subconscious in a way that makes helps the thing materialize by, you know, pushing my actions in a certain direction. Even that's magic because we don't know how it works. We don't know how exactly it works. But it's also a science because you have a sense that it works and you've done it again. Well, I uh, sorry, your your last words got clipped by uh, Skype. So just you know, say it again. Oh, um, yeah, it's if you do something in fiction and it works, and you know, on a uh, let's say you write some, you write a story, you say you know, um, next week I want to meet a person that will you know look like this. And you put that intent into the comic, and next week it happens. Um, done it a few times with various things that you wanted, and it works again and again. Um, doesn't mean you're doing science or magic, you know, because you know that it works, because you've seen it work again and again, but you don't know how exactly it works. It might work on the process of influencing your unconscious and subconscious by which you then uh, make the decisions that get you to that thing, you know, so technically it could be scientifically explained that way, but is it all there is? Is that how it all works? Do we know? No, we don't. So the line between science and magic becomes completely artificial once it's really dabbling in both. I see. And I'm I'm glad to see Matt Taylor from uh, Zero is back with you on Wolf. Is that correct? Yes, indeed. 
and talk about, you know, I mean, is you know, I and you know, I'm behind on zero. It was is zero finished with uh, volume four or yes, in- uh, okay, man. All right, so I got some catching up to do on zero. So I, I uh, I've I've only read the first two volumes. I'm sorry, it's a big comic book world. I was, <laughs> and that's the pleasure of being able to catch back up on trades and things like that. So uh, very cool. So I'm, I'm glad you guys have moved on to something else. This time you've got Lee Lowridge though. As your uh, as your colorist, correct? Instead of uh, you had Jordy, you had Jordy on zero, correct? Yes, Jordy Bernay, yeah, yeah. So Jordy Belair was on uh, on zero. Belair, yeah, yep. working together on other comics too. Like I love Jordy and I love her work. Uh, oh yeah, yeah. But Lee was uh, it just worked out in a way where where Lee was the person who took on the book, and I'm really happy about it because he's doing excellent work. Oh, oh yeah, it's beautiful, very noir. Uh, you know, again, fits fits both uh, the detective aspects of the story as well as uh, the supernatural parts as well. No, it's a beautiful book, man, and I think uh, Matt and Lee are, are doing great. And uh, you know, I no, I, I loved it. I thought it was excellent. I highly recommend it. Um, it is, like you said, along those lines of like Constantine. There's a little uh, Cal McDonald criminal macabre in there. Um, as far as again things things that people can kind of get a frame of reference of what kind of story Wolf is. But I want to leave it ambiguous. I want people to discover uh, Wolf, why he is different from those guys. And uh, as you say, too, the, the, the prison industrial, you know, the prison, the prison, the prison system is, uh, is, is a big part of what's coming. So that's, that's fantastic. I do want to transition to material because that intrigues me because, as I say, are, are only the first two issues out? Because I noticed on your blog you showed a cover of, like, issue six. <laughs> so yeah. it's not on my – okay, because I'm like – I have to admit, I, I, uh, I'm fortunate in Chicago there are so many stores that I do re- rely on uh, on the local stores to kind of catch up on things. And I had bought the first issue – and notice the second one, I think, right before I left San Diego, so I made sure that I had one and two. Am I right? Is it is it only two issues out so far? So far, there are only two, yes. Well, I love it because, yeah, you know, now this, and again, putting it in comparison, reminds me very much of the movie Syriana. Oh, in that, oh yeah, 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 I like that movie. Oh, you know, and that's the thing. I, I really see, like, some very interesting – it's – it you know, Syriana is the real – you know, it was the real world, and certainly material. Uh, what's going on is the real world. And you've got, on the one hand, uh, an academic who, again, uh, talks about this, you know, only – that we only perceive 3%. That's going on. You've got an aspire – you've got an actress who's kind of in the midst of her career – uh, you know, and, and maybe possibly on the downside of her career, but seems to have been picked up by uh, by a director and an opportunity, and kind of represents uh, just uh, how, as you say, it, it seems what you're saying is that a lot of um, organized entertainment is there to distract us and and also force us to feel and and you know uh, work on our emotions uh, and manipulate us beyond entertainment. And that sounds intriguing, and I, I look forward to seeing how that you know kind of evolves. Uh, there are a lot of stories going on here in in material. Describe the book better than <laughs> what I've just been doing, and let people know about it. Because, like you said, you know, only two issues in, and I really think there's some interesting ideas going on here. Oh, I mean, <laughs> um, I feel like there's almost no easy way to really describing the book um, because it's it's like describing your life. You know, it's, um, there's only so much 
that you can say, and there's always going to be things that are going to be away experience and away from being, uh, you know, possibly explained by words. Um, material is really a way of exploring life now, mm-hmm. not just in America, but also in the world. In the first four, uh, we're, we're explicitly in America because I wanted to start with that. And okay. um, overall, it's really about doing whatever I want. It's the book where I do whatever I want, uh, utilizing a nine-panel grid with Will Tempest, the artist. And okay. um, it's about exploring characters in that space. We um, have a very strict formal limitation that I set for us, which is there's always four characters and each scene has to base and uh, we always go through all the four characters, four scenes and then go back. So each character has three scenes in each issue. Um, okay. Which was something that I did for I don't even know why. I just wanted to know I wanted to know how it will work. I wanted to work something on, on something so decidedly formal. And I'm having a lot of fun with it. I think it's the book that's keeping me sane. <laughs> it's really the comic. I mean, you know, all of them are in certain ways, but that's really the comic that's the closest to what the world feels like right now. And Sure. And it's interacting. It's extremely fast in interacting with the world. It really digs into what it feels like to be alive now. And that was the point. That was always the point. So all these characters are aspects of me in one way or another. And um, I don't always have those aspects identified, and that's part of the fun. I won't, if, you know, if I think, well, I want to write about a, you know, a female director um, or a female actress, why am I doing that? What am I exploring through it? You know, what am I exploring through seeing the plight of uh, an African-American kid? You know, it's not that, as I said before, it's not that I have the experience. Um, I can't have that. I can't have anyone else's experience fully, um, only mine. But I can go through the fiction responsibly exploring other possibilities and potentially suggesting other worlds of all kinds, and that's what material is about. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's the third character is is the teenage kid that's uh, been harassed and picked up by the police, and we get his story. And then the fourth character is uh, a torture victim who's come home, and we kind of am I correct? That's the fourth. Yes. Okay. Yeah, and I mean, no, it's great, man. It's it's really yeah, it's the real world on on various levels, um, and it's. It's very, very interesting. Will these stories intersect, or is it that the world – I mean, you know, not to spoil, but – or is it more that um, perhaps a big world event might happen, and we see how it, it if impacts each of these four separate stories? Um, or both? You know, there's really – I don't want to tell. <laughs> okay. All right. <laughs> I don't really want to tell. Um, also, like, one part I don't want to tell because I don't necessarily know, you know. Part of it is just, um, to again, to quote Cassavetes, is love is the act of not knowing. And to me, writing is, you know, another way of loving. And so, 
to really know everything beforehand would be to sort of take the pleasure out of the act of self-discovery and discovery that writing is for me. So there are parts that I know, there are parts that I'm sensing, I, you know, but I don't want to talk about it too much. Also because I don't want to interpret my work to other people. I want them, I will give them my own reasons for why I'm doing certain things, but I won't give them the intention. Because I understand. it's one thing that I really dislike um, when, you know, when I go to a gallery and I come to, you know, <laughs> the idea of coming to, let's say, you know, a Jackson Pollock painting and looking at it for, you know, 30 minutes and being immersed in it and feeling it and, you know, listening to its own kind of music. And then you come to the painting and you see that there's something scribbled on the side and you see this fucking, you know, a uh, ten-paragraph piece about what exactly it means. <laughs> yeah. And I just go, you are trying to suck out the life, and you are being parasitic and dogmatic something that you will never be able to describe in its entirety. And it's giving people the idea that you can describe an entire experience and categorize it perfectly. When I understand what you said. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah you- well, you're you're right. You're robbing, especially when you're talking about like art like that. Yeah, you're robbing people of the experience of how it how it moves you. And I can certainly see that in in uh, you know this book in terms of what you what you reveal in the two two issues so far and the questions you're already asking. And certainly, uh, Jackson Pollock plays a role in uh, in in the. In the it, I can't remember if it was the first or second issue, but certainly that's that's in there. I also love the uh, the essays as well, and uh, man, I really I'm really glad that a lot of you who are doing books through Image are really taking that opportunity beyond uh, telling the comic book story to have these essays because it really does give us something more to think about, and uh, you know it's you know you learn about uh, people that you don't you know wouldn't normally catch. In our, in our wonder bread white white world American culture, and even just you know what what again the uh, the powers that be spit out at you in in uh, television and newspapers and radio. So uh, it's it's great and and truly, man, that that is one of the reasons why I I appreciate your point of view that you know it is it's it is different than you know just your standard weekly stuff. And I'm glad that you have. Uh, that image is there for you to explore these. I'm assuming that you get, obviously, a lot more freedom to do that, as crazy as things like Bucky Barnes is. But, I, you know, um, I, like, is is it tougher? You know, do you, would you like to push in those directions? And uh, as far as your Marvel work goes, have you been able to get what you want? And or And do you approach those as more straightforward stories or do you know do you feel like you're you know with things that you've done like war machine and secret avengers and stuff and and the and the current stuff it, it, are you getting to tell the stories that you want to tell do you or are there still some things that they're like yeah maybe not that way um i mean well i don't really do i'm not doing more work with marvel so i don't really okay. i'm not really i'm not really in that um in that mind space anymore Okay. Um, I decided to focus primarily on the creator on work. I'm, I might do one thing on the side uh, at some company, but, you know, something. But for majority of my time, it's really comics and mass film and TV right now. And uh, the majority of the comics that I want to do in my life are comics that don't have corporate oversight. Because sure. 
unless I'm given complete control, you know, and I don't want that. I don't want to, I don't want to have to deal with the ideas of working in, you know, in a, like in comics in order to like subvert something major. I tried that. It worked, you know, and to some extent, like Secret Avengers, I think is pretty great. Winter Soldier is sort of a mess, but it's a really pretty mess. I like it. <laughs> I really do, man. Me too. Thank you, man. But I, but I like it in a way of like you know, in in a way of being like, yeah, like this is nothing like what I sort of aim for in certain ways. But in other ways, that's perfectly fine because there's so much of the book that uh, that just you know just makes me go. Marvel had to put this out in 2015. You know, um, it's like. If if that was how I pitched the book, I'm not so sure if it would have gotten made, you know? Like, I, I had really no idea what I was doing with it half the time. But with Secret Avengers, I also sort of didn't have an idea, but uh, I was working with a different artist who was very straightforward, and that obviously created a much clearer um, storytelling overall and a much different dynamic in terms of writing and art, huh? One was good and one was bad. I'm saying the stuff that I did on Secret Avengers was definitely way more in sync with um, with how I uh, ideally work with artists. But I'm happy about them both. And the thing is, Marvel is a corporation. I mean, it's a massive it's a massive corporation uh, because Disney is a massive corporation. And I mean, at the end of the day, the corporation will never care about you. It can't because it's not human, despite of you know what uh, some people might be trying to uh, you know legislate. legislate. Yeah, it just it's just not how it works, and we've seen <laughs> that plenty of times in the past. And I'm not really interested in being fodder for that. I'm not really interested in spending my possibly best creative years working for Marvel or DC on majority of their books, and it's not because I don't like what they do in certain ways. It's because I can imagine a better way to spend my time. Of course, it's also immensely risky because I'm essentially taking a dive and saying no to huge paychecks in exchange for following my dream, which is, you know, working on my own comics and doing film and TV on the side. And, you know, Mm -hmm. and thankfully I've had some successes and I feel like I'm progressing in a really cool direction. But half the time, I don't know. Half the time, I think... Maybe I was crazy. Maybe <laughs> and I completely fucked up. And in six months, I'm going to be uh, out in the street. And, God forbid. <laughs> and I'm just going, you know, oh, that's, you know, I have potentially really shit the bed here. And, <laughs> but the thing is, most of the time I don't. And I have to be true to my dreams. I really have to. Like, I've never really gotten much good from not following crazy ideas that I had because, and you know, they were usually classified as crazy by other people because, I mean, if I can imagine a better way of living than I'm living now, then if it doesn't, you know, if it's, if it's something that I feel strongly about, I feel I should follow it because otherwise I'll be in this strange place where I'm sort of happy with my life, but sort of not. And I would prefer spending less and less time in my life in that particular space. I really want to have a pretty great life and be able to facilitate 
others' lives the same way, help them have great lives, you know, whether that's about um, the kind of ideas I distribute, whether it's about the way I interact with my teams and the way I want my teams to work and, you know, have share of rights in everything I do. All these things matter and they all really come back to the worldview of um, that is sort of utopian, but I don't see utopia as a bad word. I see it as a very beautiful word and very beautiful concept. I want to do my best while I'm here. And in order to do that, I have to follow the best ideas I have. And the best ideas in this case weren't doing more Marvel or DC stuff. Do you think you learned enough doing the the stuff that you did at DC and Marvel? I know that people like Jonathan Hickman, not only from a creative standpoint, but really from a business standpoint, where it was able to kind of, you know, take some lessons on, on how Marvel strategizes and use them for his image books. And, you know, do you see yourself working primarily through image or would you entertain and I don't even know if this has already happened for you because clearly you're having success with these books um, have some of the other publishers that you know enter into deals with creators of hey do what you want we'll do the production heavy lifting for you and certainly image offers that but it seems like you know the IDW's Dark Horses and some of these other publishers boom are able to cut a deal with someone that, you know, gives them that creative freedom, but also takes away uh, the production responsibilities and kind of frees them up to do their thing. I don't know if that is interesting to you enough. And also more importantly, like I said, that first question of, do you feel you learned enough from a positive business standpoint of what DC and Marvel do? Well, I mean, I don't really have the point of view that I can ever learn enough. Um, Sure. So, no, you know, I mean, I'm sure that there could be more that I could learn, um, always. Um, so that's really the answer to your first question. I've learned okay. something, but I know I could learn more. Um, to answer the second question, what was the second question? The second question, like, as opposed to going through Image, do you ever see yourself maybe oh, yeah, working with a Dark Horse or, a, you know, an IDW, another another publisher that would give you the creative freedom, but maybe handle some of the production I mean, responses? Sure, it's a possibility if someone offers me a better deal than Image does. Okay. Which, I, see, yeah. which, which, I mean, I don't really see happening, but okay. uh, if okay. someone does, um, you know, I'm open to contemplating those choices, but... I really love my publisher. I, I really love in doing what I'm doing there. Um, I'm, I'm open to working with other publishers in general. You know, and as I said, there might be a like a project in another publisher rounds that I might do something with, but it's not it's not something I necessarily see as the best way of going uh, going through my life. That can obviously change. We evolve and we see what happens next, but. The fact is the image deal lets me own 100% of what I do, and together with my team, I have complete control over every aspect of production. Um, The way I see, uh, the money I see from my image books versus the money I would see from books at other publishers, it's actually, if the books sell enough, bigger an image. Usually it's like, and I mean, you know, if we're talking like other certain places like Boom and so on, um, there's another discussion to be had about page rates and why they are so low at certain places. Well, and the reason why I ask is 
it's interesting. Everyone has their own career journey, but it's been interesting to see uh, people and how long it takes for them to make an impact at one of the big two, if that's still necessary now. Because I, I was just talking about this with uh, Mark Miller uh, a month or so ago, and I wouldn't call working for DC and Marvel college, and it's more than an apprenticeship, but it does seem to be, for some, a good step to kind of get your name out there. And, oh, okay, you know, this is this guy has a different point of view. And, and certainly... Um, the, luckily now, you know, I mean, everyone's name is on the comic, so they know, oh, this writer is making this comic a different, interesting thing. And sometimes, you know, it's it seems like uh, as time has progressed, people need less and less time at one of the big two to kind of make a splash, get people to notice, and then they are able to pick up and go, hey, guess what? Now I'm doing a creator-owned thing. If you like what I've been, you know, doing here, with the limitations that come with working with the big two, imagine what I can do when I've got free reign and really can, you know, indulge in the kind of story that I want. You're obviously succeeding doing that, and that's great. But, uh, yeah, I'm just fascinated that, it, like I said, it just seems like for, for some of the creators out there, yeah, that time of building that audience seems to be smaller. You know, I mean, again, I, I don't know. I mean, you know, I, how much of your stuff was alongside of your, you know, DC and Marvel experiences, your your previous uh, creator-owned stuff? Well, I mean, you know, well, Will Moss, my editor at Marvel and DC before, read Wild Children, and that's why he offered me Suicide Squad. Um, there you go. So, I mean, I, I, I see the correlation and so on and so on. Um, I don't think that it's necessary, which was a part of nowadays, to, to work with Marvel or DC. And that's that's actually why I decided to do what I did in large part, you know, meaning not take on more work with Marvel because I had plenty of possibilities there and I was very grateful for them, but it just didn't feel right. It didn't feel as right as the other things. And I would rather leave that space for other people who will really believe in what they do um, there. Not that I didn't, I seriously love secret Avengers. And I think that it's one of the best comics I've written so far. Um, Anyways, um, yeah, I really respect Mark Miller. I actually feel like I had a dream last night where I was saying that I was that I really respected Mark Miller, um, <laughs> which is really funny, you know. Like, not I'm not necessarily saying I'm, I agree with everything he does or says, not at all. But I really respect his business acumen and the way he works with his audience um, in certain ways. And in regards to In regards to that sort of um, that sort of uh, circle where you know you do the creator on work, then you build up at the Marvel and DC, and then you do more uh, creator on work again. Mm-hmm. To me, it just feels um, in life in general, it feels wrong for me to do things because I want to eventually do other things. You know, like. Um, mm-hmm. The sense of like, I'm going to sort of suffer in some ways for a few years, but I'm also going to have some fun with it. But I'm going to put myself in a situation that is not as good as what I can imagine so I can eventually deserve the good. Sure. It's like it's a very like Catholic, you know, very, very Catholic mentality of like, I am going to suffer because otherwise I don't deserve this nice thing. And I don't really have that. As I, as Modoc says in Secret Avengers, Polish or Religion, um, 
you know, I don't, I don't feel that anymore. And I feel like shedding that part, shedding that part where I feel like I need to earn good things in life, um, is really important for me because I don't really feel entitled to, you know, to anything, but I feel like there's no reason why I shouldn't get what I want as long as I'm not harming anyone else in the pro in the progress. And of course that's, you know, that, that ties us back into the earlier debate because technically speaking, we're all benefiting from uh, certain, you know, shitty things uh, in the system. Plenty, uh, for example, institutionalized racism, because essentially if you're, if you have a 401k insurance in America, you're about 20% out of it is covered by corporations who are primarily supporting um, prison industrial complex in massive, massive ways. So in, in a very grand sense, almost every single one of us is actually making money off that shit, which is something that has to change systematically. But the systemic change always begins on, a, in, on an individual level. And so by making those choices, by making choices to actively say, no, I'm not going to do this because it doesn't feel quite right. Hopefully, well, no, actually, I'm certain I am changing something. It's just a little bit. It's just one stone, you know, one pebble on a gigantic beach. But butterfly effect is real. And it affects sure. others. Yes. Is, are we going to see more of that in Wolf and Material in terms of that connection between the corporate structure and the prison system? It's definitely, I mean, like half of um, issues five to eight are set in the prison. For Wolf or for Material? Um, for Wolf. And, okay, wow. And with Material, okay. I mean, you know, um, one of the main characters is dealing with it in the first right. issues. And, I mean, it's something that's always on the... Actually, two of the characters are in a way. Um, you know. You're right. Yeah, yeah. The guy, the torture victim, and absolutely, then the kid, the kid that was arrested and everything here in America. Absolutely. So, and in the sense, all of these people, also in another sense, which is completely different, all of these people are prisoners of their own perception in the beginning. True, and even the actress uh, beholden to her career with the uh, corporate structure. So, yeah, no, I get it, man. No, it's honestly, and that's why. I, I, it's refreshing to get this kind of story, these stories, Wolf as well. So you have, and it's good, and, I, and like I said, shame on me that I didn't realize that Zero had wrapped up, because that's always my question with these image things, and we're, we're getting close to the end. Um, and, I, and I'm just curious no about, um, what's that? No shame necessary. <laughs> Is, uh, like, are, do you see? Oh, I appreciate that because yeah, I want to. I do want to. I do want to finish reading it. Is um, but but knowing when to get off the stage with a property and move on to something else. Do you kind of know lengthwise what you want from from Wolf and Material? Again, I know you're leaving yourself open, and you you've just started the journey with both, so there's plenty of of time and, and space to do it. But do you think you'd stay under thirty issues or around thirty issues? How do you see? You know what what feels right to tell these stories. You know, I really have no idea. Uh, okay. It could be, like, with material, I would love to run for at least a few years. I would love to run cool. for, you know, four, six, eight, whatever's going to feel sure. right. Um, with Wolf, I can imagine the story ending in 30 or 40. I can imagine the story ending in 20 if it doesn't sell. I can imagine it going longer. 
Um, it will really depend on, on how it feels as we go. It's very much a process of constant discovery, you know. Okay, okay Vaughn thought Saga would end after six, six issues, you know, so who knows? Sure. Well, and did did Zero, was it was it just like always going to only be that long? Or did you feel, was it sales that dictated um, wrapping it up as quickly as it did? It was definitely partially a sales decision. Once, I, once we were sort of halfway through the run, I started realizing that the book, while doing really well in trades, would not be doing that well in single issues. And I thought, well, I'm not going to put artists and myself in a situation where we're not earning money off our work uh, sure. month to month. So how do I wrap this up? And basically the majority of what I wanted to explore, I ended up exploring in one way or another. I just sort of, uh, I took another route to get there. And I had another possible choice. I could have cut the book after issue 16. I could have come back with um with another artist and uh, have done the entire second half of the book in the future, which was another way I could have gone, like starting in 2038 with the second half of the book and pretty much having the entire second half of the book be in 2038 and have it reflect the first half in certain ways. Interesting. But it was just something that didn't feel right, so I ended up doing what I did. Okay. How are things going in TV and movie world? I know that's an aspiration of yours, so... Um, I mean, pretty great. Um, you know, I wrote the first two episodes of the Zero TV show that is in development. Um, there are some people involved that I can't mention, but that whose involvement makes me very, very happy. Terrific. Um, you know, in development is a very sort of a nebulous way of describing yes. it, but it's really, it's really the best way to describe it right now. We are actively okay. moving forward every month, and that's really awesome. Fantastic. Um, yeah, and in regards to other projects, there's a thing I wrote that I want to direct eventually, and there's another there's another couple of movies that I'm working on right now. So, and a couple other things that I'm talking about with um, various studios or you know TV networks and so on, cable networks. So, it's good. It's uh, uh I'm in that cusp where I'm not quite there, but I'm also far enough to know that I gotten somewhere pretty fast and that I should be putting the energy into it and move further. So I'm doing that and I'm having fun with it. That's excellent, man. And I, I hope that, uh, we hear soon about, uh, you know, a destination for, for zero from a, from a television or film standpoint. It sounds like television, obviously, if you're working on episodes, so that's great. Um, no, uh, keep it up, man. Uh, really, so zero in material. Obviously, that's your main focus right now. Nothing else on the horizon. I don't know if you announced anything at Image Expo. So, as so much happens right before San Diego, that I'm, you know, I kind of voiced that. And as I told you off the air, you know, my brain is still mush, so I'm I'm catching up with uh, with information that might have uh, come out either at Image Expo or during Comic Con. But uh, is that your focus right now, uh, material and Wolf? Uh, material and Wolf, and doing the final issue of the Surface. Um, I just wrapped yes. up, yeah, I just wrapped up the Dead Drop and Valiant. Um, cool. And, you know, the last issue, Winter Soldier, is coming out pretty soon. And after that, there are some other image books that are not announced yet. They're going to drop next year that I'm going to eventually come out with, but it wasn't time yet. Okay. Man, and uh, final thought on uh, Winter Soldier. I love, and as you said, 
that that combination of science and magic, and we're certainly getting that with you know the techie space opera aspect of what's going on, uh, the the alien world that Bucky finds himself on, and of course uh, Loki messing with him and Crossbones. It's uh, it's a good mishmash. I, as you say, I'm um, the limitations. Did the limitations provide? You know, a lot of times people become more more creative when when they're kind of stuck in a box and it forces you to kind of come up with creative solutions and it sounds i mean again you see, you seem proud of what you were able to do with it not quite what you were expecting but is that is that you know is it fair to say that you know it gave you because you were limited uh, a chance to kind of stretch and move into directions you wouldn't have had you had the complete freedom well i mean you know i i, I can't really tell what would be otherwise i mean you know i wouldn't probably you know like it's 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 such a it's such a different category, but I mean I don't really self censor myself, and I pitched Marvel on the basic idea, and they and they went for it. So it it's not like I didn't have support from them in the beginning. You know, I really like in terms of working with Marvel, I it was pretty great. They were really nice to me, and um, you know, in lots of ways, it just didn't eventually feel right. It's like sometimes you're you know you're with a person and you love them, but you also know that you're not necessarily that amazing for each other. And that's sort of, that's sort of similar. I mean, the, the core idea of winter soldier was really good and useful for me because I essentially, they essentially said Bucky Barnes is a space assassin who, uh, guards our world from all the threats. And my perception of the world is that all these things that we want to perceive as threats are usually anything but, so my thinking was, well, how do I completely subvert what I what what you know Marvel wants me to do? Because I'm pretty decidedly anti-war. Um, obviously, there are situations where violence, uh, you know, has to happen if you know if let's say you're attacked personally or so on and need to stop it. But for majority of it, like this idea of threat assessment and this idea of making more weapons so we can be better prepared for to defend ourselves from things that we fear because we don't understand them. That to me is like the opposite of my attitude to life. I don't, I don't want to, um, gear up so I can scare other things and other experiences off. I want to go towards them. So that was really my through line with winter soldier. It was like, what happens when a space assassin becomes open to other experiences and so on. Yeah. That's awesome, man. Well, I'm, 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 you know, looking forward to the wrap up of that then, because yeah, it's been a, it's been a great story, and I didn't realize that you were uh, leaving after ten. I'm assuming issue ten is the 11. final issue. Eleven is the final one. Excuse me, eleven is the final one. Okay, nine's the last one I read, so okay. Oh great, you have two more to get it. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, keep it up, man. That's that's great. It sounds like everything's going well. And no, the uh, as I say, wolf and material, intriguing ideas, and shouldn't uh, be surprising again for people who have been fans of your creator-owned work or your Marvel work or even your uh, moment with Suicide Squad. Um, so uh, keep it up and uh, very excited. And, and when there's more to talk about, I hope you'll come back. John, thank you. It was a total pleasure. I really enjoyed this. 
This portion of Word Balloon is brought to you by InStock Trades at InStockTrades.com. Uh, excellent deals are happening this week at InStock Trades. The Justice Society is well represented. A great trade paperback, America versus the Justice Society. I remember when that miniseries came out in the 80s. Batman from the Grave accusing the Justice Society of treason. Uh, fantastic story. Uh, the trade is 50% off. It's just $7.49. You can also get a celebration of 75 years of the Justice Society at 50% off, $19.99. Great to see this collection come out. Legends of the Dark Knight, Norm Brayfogle, Volume 1. 50% off, it's just $24.99. The original Ghost Rider, the uh, Silver Age Ghost Rider, the, the cowboy character. Hardcover Volume 1 is available at 25% off, $37.49. You can get the uh, hardback uh, Sunny Volume 5, 30% off, $16.09. And Wally Woods EC Comics, the Artist Edition, is uh, 30% off, $34.99. That's all waiting for you at InStockTrades.com. All right, let's uh, talk now and reach back to the Silver Age of comics with our friend comic historian Arlen Schumer. Now, Arlen, of course, uh, has a great uh, reputation as a graphic artist. Uh, He started off at Neil Adams Continuity uh, Studios years ago and uh, has been uh, doing great books and presentations at conventions and various lectures on uh, subjects like The Twilight Zone and Rod Serling and a lot on comic book history. This year, one of his particular presentations uh, got a lot of notice. Uh, it did quite well at San Diego Comic-Con. When he told me the story, it blew me away. And I'm like, you got to tell this story on, on Word Balloon, and hopefully it'll get people out to uh, see this man's work. We're talking about the letterer Ira Schnapp of DC Comics. And uh, letterers get dismissed all the time, but uh, we are reminded again how important they are when we talk to people like Richard Starkings in uh, the modern day. But uh, it's nice to hear uh, a very good historic note from uh, one of the great letterers of the past, Irish Schnapp. Here is Arlen Schumann to tell his Schumer to tell his story now on Word Balloon. Arlen Schumer, welcome back to Word Balloon. It was about a year ago that I think you were on last, and we were talking about your uh, great Silver Age book. And uh, we can we can certainly plug that again. But uh, you've got a brand new uh, presentation, audio visual presentation that you're doing. The audio is you talking about a great DC creator that was very crucial to this, the Silver Age, got his start in the Golden Age, has this amazing pedigree, and uh, we know very little about him. So welcome, and I'm excited about the story you're going to give us today. Great being here, John. You know, it's really what you forgot to mention was the uh, presentations based on a currently running exhibit in New York City on that great DC letter who is named Ira Schnapp, of course. Um, but that's what that's all about, is that I got the chance to do an exhibit uh, at a very prestigious location in Manhattan and to blow up Ira Schnapp's house ads and his great logos. I mean, I got to blow up the Superman logo 14 feet long. Was it really a, a bit of a dream come true? And, uh, I mean, I've been to comic art exhibits. You know, most of them involve hanging original art and stuff. This is not – there's not a single piece of original art in my exhibit, but it's comic art like you've never seen it. They had these, like, deep – 24-inch deep, like, giant kind of window box exhibit rectangles, like 10, 11, 12 feet wide. And they presented, you know, this incredible opportunity to hang images – 
in foreground and background because of the 24 inches of depth. So uh, I'm really proud of it because it came out beautiful. And, you know, it's like Irish Snap's logo are almost like floating in space. Uh, That's behind nice. even bigger logos. I got to blow up the go-go checks 12 feet long. Go-go <laughs> checks. 60s go-go checks. We're talking about Irish Snap, who created a lot of the iconic logos of the Silver Age. His story with comics starts with the Superman logo, which he updated from Joe Schuster's original design, and it's debated whether it started in, in 38 or 40, Schnapp's, Schnapp's upgrades. Well, but, you're, 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 you're mixing one logo with the other. Um, okay. His first logo is possibly Action Comics number one in 1938. Excuse although, me, the Action Comics logo. Go on. Right. Although that's been disputed. Um, Todd Klein, the great DC letterer, uh, has written on his blog that he interviewed Michael Uslin, you know, the producer of the Batman films, among other, you know, many credits and comics, um, who remembers talking to Irish Schnapp before he was retired from D.C. in 1968 and asked Schnapp if he had done Action 1, and he said, Schnapp said no. Now, maybe Schnapp could have misremembered, as our favorite President George Bush used to say, or was that Reagan? Who knows? But, uh, you know, oh, no, Reagan was, I can't recall. I think Iran Contra, right, I'm assuming, yeah. Right. I can't and yeah, yeah, no, I misremembered. It's definitely a, a George W. Yes. Bush's. No so, question. No because, question. Because here's the thing. If you look at the DC logos before Action One, the very primitive logos for adventure comics and, det- and detective comics, they've got and that fun si- and, more, and fun and more fun as well. Yeah, but the, the original look most three. like action comics with the word comics underneath the word action in that oh, I, Art yeah, Deco yeah, 1930s no, style. Right, and as you say, yeah, adventure and, right. and, so and detective. You, yeah, they had that Art Deco right. style, absolutely. So when you look at those, they look a little raw and a little rough. And then you look at action number one, and it's got all the hallmarks of what we would eventually come to associate with all of his great logos, is that solidity, that consistency in line weights or serifs. And that's a mark of a real professional hand letterer is the consistency in the letter forms themselves that all the thicks and the thins are all of the same width and weight. And that's what you see in Action 1. So maybe Ira might have forgotten that he had done Action 1. But regardless, if it's not Action 1, then Superman, the logo that he does, his version of the classic one, debuts on Superman number 6. In 1940, the first five issues, if you look at reproductions of them, you'll see a logo by Schuster that is primitive and raw and a little amateurish. But that's because most artists, especially comic artists, well, not especially, but most artists, if they're not trained in lettering or type, don't really know how to do it or don't do it well. Some of our greatest artists, look at Windsor McKay's Little Nemo. You look at the lettering and the word balloons, it's horrible. It's almost illegible. The guy was maybe the greatest draftsman in comic book, comic strip history, and yet the guy couldn't do type well. So to to this day, (laughs) yeah, exactly. To this day, even the greatest artists, if you're not trained, it's a very esoteric, specialized subset of graphic design 
typography and lettering and calligraphy. And it's more, it's as much of a craft as it is an art. And therefore, if you're not really trained in it, you know, lettering, word spacing, letting, space in between lines, it gets into arcane language of setting type and all that other stuff. The point is, is um, in order to see the difference between what Schnapp brought to the Superman logo and why it is the Coca-Cola of comic book logos, because like that Coca-Cola logo, the, the look of that Superman logo, the telescopic style, the way Schnapp took Schuster's idea and basically made it look like U.S. Steel. Professional, absolutely, yes. Yeah. So from there, he goes on, you know, years later, he, thought, he does the Superboy logo. He's the main oh, yeah. DC Comics letterer. And then, yes. and then don't, 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 yeah, don't, don't tell the story yet because I, we're, well, we're, we're even seeing the story now because we haven't done the, the backstory yes. prior to comics. And that's the thing. This is an incredible, like Mozart of lettering. And you know, I'm really glad we're doing this because outside of Chris Iliopoulos, I haven't had Todd Klein on and, and I really haven't uh, explored lettering and coloring as I should on the show. Nobody has. Nobody has. Yeah, but you know something? These are the young son heroes, and Schnapp's story illustrates that, I think, perfectly, and really is this, like, guy that we can all, like, step back and, and really appreciate when we lay out his body of work, which, again, starts before comics, because as a teenager, the guy ended up doing incredible work for two New York landmarks that still stand today. Tell the story. The Roman letters on top of New York City's Penn Station post office. The famous phrase, neither rain nor snow nor gloom of night, etc., etc. Yep. Ira Schnapp. Crazy. Now, As a teenager. I worked for Neil Adams. Neil Adams uh, was at D.C. starting in 1967. Schnapp goes to Florida in 68. So that one brief year, Neil Adams used to talk to Irish Schnapp and interacted with him and told me when I was working for him that Schnapp brought in giant pieces of tracing paper, folded over, and when you unfolded them, they were giant Roman letters drawn on the tracing paper that were given to the stonecutters wow. to cut the letters. Schnapp so comes from he, he comes from a family. Yeah, it's amazing. He comes from a family of stonecutters. In my lecture and in the exhibition I show the image of the Schnapp family crest from Poland, from Sassau, or no, not Poland, excuse me, Austria, Sassau, okay. Austria. Um, like a lot of East Coast Jews, I'm one of them. We all came from Eastern Europe somewhere. My father's sure. side of family came from Austria, Hungary, or whatever. So they all came okay. over. Schnapp comes over. He's born in 1895 or something like that. He comes. Yeah, October, October 10th. It's going to be right. his 120th birthday coming up. Go on. Is it 1895? Yes, it is. So he comes to America very early. I don't know whether he's born here or born over there, but whatever. Yeah, I think over there, actually. Okay, That's so he comes here very young. comes here very young, and you know there were these pogroms, not to get sidetracked into politics, but these famous pogroms that happened in like 1903, uh, which were basically the dress rehearsal for what the Nazis would do 40 years later. The, the Russians kind of showed the way, and uh, um, that caused a wave of immigration that a lot of the East Coast Jews uh, in the 20th century came from the immigration following that great pogrom. I think it was in Kiev, 
And, uh, you know, it had to do with the protocols of the elders of Zion and blah, blah, blah. I'm getting sidetracked, but that's why we love your podcast. Anyway, right. so, so Schnapp comes in, and because he came from a family of stonecutters, he must have had the talent, the skill passed down through the genes. Who knows? And, you know, here's the interesting thing. His name, Ira, the Hebrew derivation of Ira is I, the I itself. And Schnapp is from the German Schnappen, which means to chatter. So, John, his very name <laughs> means words and pictures, comics. It's like he was destined. Irish Schnapp. You can't make this That's stuff funny. up. That's so, funny. as a teenager yeah. living in New York City, somehow, because there's no concrete records of this, he got the gig to do the Roman letters on top of Penn Station. From the, that was like 1912 or something. Then from there he gets the job 1914 to, uh, or maybe the post office. I forget which job comes first. He does the um, um, library on 42nd Street, the famous New York Library with the giant lions in front. He does the Roman letters of New York Public li- Library. So. Yeah, maybe that came after the Grand Central, uh, I'm not, the uh, Penn Station job. There's also a possibility, again, because there's no concrete records, that he might have done the Grand Central lettering too, because when you compare it to the public library lettering, which was right next door to Grand Central, um, they looked, you know, very much alike. So the point is, is that job gets him the job at the post office doing stamp design in the early, uh, like, 1912, 1914, that era. Yep. So then we pick up the story while Schnapp's at D.C. in 1953. Wait, wait, wait. Uh, Don't tell the story yet. Hold on. Keep it, because we want to go chronologically. I'm going chronologically. Yeah, but again, you stepped stepped apart in the 30s before you got to D.C. Oh, well, I'm jumping ahead because... Well, that's why, well, no, but no, you saved that, because we got got that he was at the post office, and that, no, you got to set up your suspense. so you want me to just keep going chronologically? Hey. Well, yeah. Well, just because there was this was an interesting part of his career as well. He worked during the silent era. He made he made title cards for silent films, and then also. Uh, he made uh, the smaller movie posters, the lobby cards uh, that would dot all along, you know, all these right. movie themes and stuff. And you even said that one of the comic creators was very aware of his uh, of his work back in the '30s, wasn't it, Gil Kane? No, Murphy Anderson, oh, great PC penciler slash inker, because he did both beautifully. Um, he was a teenager in the 1930s, and he went on record as saying that. You could, uh, and in those days, Times Square had like hundreds, literally hundreds of movie theaters. Sure. And Murphy Anderson said you couldn't go to Times Square and not not see Irish Snap lobby cards. He said they were everywhere. And the construction of lobby cards beyond the same kind of information you'd get on a on a movie poster. Sometimes it would be pictures. Sometimes it would be a movie poster like illustration, and it would obviously have a little cast stuff. But a lot of what we would see in Iris' work as the Silver Age progressed. So they, you know, again, the Superman logo being as important as it was to Iris' legacy. But then we, as you say, now we're we're in that period. So right right before the Silver Age, when when Wortham is doing his magic and saying how terrible comic books are, and uh, you know the whole link between reading comic books and juvenile delinquency reaches the levels of Senate hearings. God, and you know this as well, Arlen. The uh, 
I, I forget which radio station it was at NEW or uh, that has the actual audio, and you can hear uh, the Wortham hearings. You've heard those on SoundCloud, haven't you? You know, I'm not sure I have. Oh man! Oh, dude, I'm really glad we're you see we're exchanging information before we started rolling. We were talking about uh, Peter Lawford and Sammy Davis Jr. movies, yeah. but that's another conversation. Ah. But yeah, there. Um, I know on the media WNYC. Uh, their their media watchdog show on their blog. If you if you do a search, you'll and I know I've talked about this before on Word Balloon, but it's been a couple of years. You can hear Bill Gaines' testimony I, uh, to the I Senate think, hearing. Committee. I think I have heard a clip of the Gaines thing. That's, I mean, that's the whole crux of the whole issue is how he. It was his testimony that fell apart. You know, Absolutely, yeah. or whatever the hell was going on. Yeah, Benzid- Benzedrine, one of the uh, one of the weight loss uh, kind of uh, you know speed diet pills that were happening back then or whatever. And yeah, he's just like whacked out on his you know kind of crumbled in cross examination. That yes, his comic book covers were incredibly violent, and something needs to be done about them. And you know the comic publishers get together and they create the Comics Code Authority, and Irish Schnapp is there to be a bigger part of that. Yes, he designs the famous stamp that appears in the upper right corner that, that feels like it was there forever. We all grew up with it. I bet you if you lined up 10 or 100 knowledgeable comic book fans and asked them who designed the Comics Code stamp, I guarantee you none of them <laughs> are going to tell you Irish Snap. Now, maybe Absolutely. because, you know, between my stuff that's gotten out there recently and you know, the guy that I learned all my Schnapp stuff from, that guy Robbie Reed, who does Dial B for blog, that great comic history blog. In Absolutely. 06, he does a 10-part series on Schnapp. I had always, again, I remember hearing Schnapp's name, you know, from Neil Adams here and there, but didn't really know or had forgotten probably the incident about Neil and the, uh, and the Roman letters. Maybe I had even forgotten that. And in 06, Robbie Reed comes up with this, 10-part series on Schnapp's life and work, and that's where we learned all this stuff, and it was mind-boggling. So in my exhibit, in my lecture, I thank Robbie, because without him unearthing this stuff in 06, it wouldn't have influenced me to do what I've wanted to do all these years, is to exhibit those those house ads and blow them up like posters and maybe even get a book out of it, you know. Um, I, sure. I lectured in San Diego on Schnapp and talked to a few publishers, and, you know, maybe there's a little interest, so I'm hoping that would be a dream come true, to actually reproduce uh, Schnapp's house ads and logos in art book format, because I consider him one of the greatest hand letterers of the 20th century, and that includes all those beautiful movie posters of the 30s and 40s that were hand-lettered beautifully. That includes, obviously, all the European graphic design and posters that had hand-lettering. That would include uh, the fruit crates in America in the 18th, you know, 19th centuries, those beautifully hand-lettered. You know, these are all things that have come uh, back into consideration from graphic design historians. And I would take um, Irish Schnapp's house ads that he did for DC, and this is what I do in my in my lecture presentation, is I show them as the great hand lettering they are on a par with these movie posters and fruit crates and things like that. And I have no problem ranking him 
in the 20th century as one of the greatest hand letterers of that century, you know, no two ways about it. No, there's a good case there, absolutely. And you appreciate with these house ads and also the logos, the importance of this. And it's funny, I was just talking to Mark Miller in the last month or two, Mm. and I was asking him about some of his creations, and uh, specifically that Jupiter's Legacy and Jupiter's uh, Circle uh, series that he's doing, that is kind of his watchman for sh- a shorthand description of what it is. And I said, do you think much about logos and trademarks when you're when you're creating these series? And he said, no, I'm really honestly just thinking about the story. And you think of how important, certainly, the Superman logo is from a t-shirt and merchandise standpoint. We mentioned the Comics Code Authority. That's one of my favorite ironic like comic t-shirts that I've seen in the last five or six years. And I think those are excellent. And I mean, that's the thing. It's like, and also just back in the day, especially during the Silver Age and as I remember the Bronze Age, how important comic book logos were in that first 25% of real estate on a comic cover to really make catch your eye. Well, and this guy, you know, really was responsible. And this is what, as we get to the mid 50s and the Silver Age, this is Schnapp's work hand in hand with those house ads, this really important period of. You know, all of a sudden, Comic somebody. Renaissance. Yes, when they decide to bring the superheroes back, and you and I've had this conversation recently, where it's ironic because just a couple of years earlier, Timely tried to bring back the superheroes a little bit earlier, 1953ish. Right. I think was that year, yeah. and it was you know it was Captain America, Submariner, Human Torch. But they were all recast as commie smashers. Yes. You know, I mean, yes. I remember Neil Adams, who, who was, he was born in 41. So he grows up as a teenager in the 50s. And I sure. remember him telling me that he said they made us think the communists were worse than the Nazis. So that's the kind of villains the communists were right. in the 50s. So sure. the idea anyway, the point is, is they brought them back the same and no costume change. And, no, and, and, they, and, artists, they fl- but, and they flopped. And, you know, yes. and there were little things, you know, when historians get together and talk about what was the exact beginning of the Silver Age. Like most movements, there's often not an exact beginning yet. Sure. A case is always made that showcase four in 56, the first appearance of what we call the Silver Age Flash by Carmen Infantino, written by Bob Kaniger, blah, 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 edited by Julius Schwartz. The thing is, nobody knows for sure who up at D.C., let's say in 1955, decided to not only bring the Flash back, but unlike what Timely did with Captain America and Submariner, etc., is to bring him back as a new person, as a, with a new costume. That is the first example of what I would call a pop culture reboot in American pop culture history, because that had never been done before. And that was the stroke of genius. And whoever came up with it, nobody knows. Maybe it was Whitney Ellsworth, the executive editor. Maybe it was Donenfeld. Maybe it was Leibowitz. But Julius Schwartz, the editor, always claimed it wasn't his idea. It was given to him to do. And so the thing is, it's very interesting that whoever came up with that idea, nobody knows to this day, and it's never been credited. So, but as we've always as we've always heard the discussion with the people you just mentioned, Schwartz, Kaniger, Infantino, uh, John Broom can be in there, Joe Kubert can be in there. Schnapp's name is never there, and yet 
he's the guy who comes up with that Flash logo. Right, but you got to remember, Schnapp is the letterer. I mean, when it was time right. for, and that's the thing. So at the at the dawn of the Silver Age, Schnapp is coming into his own as a letterer of himself in terms of his mature uh, quality style. At the same time, all those Silver Age DC artists are coming into their mature styles. The guys who were teenagers in the 40s during the Golden Age, Infantino, Kubert, Gil Kane, Murphy Anderson, that whole crew is coming of age as the Silver Age kicks in. And yep. Schnapp's lettering comes of age just the right place at the right time. So when they need logos for all of these new characters that are basically reboots of the 40s Golden Age characters, Schnapp is there to give all those characters logos that were as iconic as those new characters were and are DC's icons. That's absolutely right. Yeah, man. And now the Flash, Green Lantern, Adam, Hawkman, Justice League of America, on and on and on and on, all through the 60s. But that's the thing. You stop and think about each of those logos. The Flash, it has the speed lines. It had the lightning, too, right? Uh, Flash is really just the speed line. It is just the speed lines. Okay, Green Lantern had the flame, right. which is interesting because it was the scientific Green Lantern of Hal Jordan, and yet the green flame almost evokes the Alan Scott uh, original the actual lantern. Well, you know, people yeah. talk about the flame of the lantern of the electric light because it harkens back to when people really had torches, you know, Absolutely. made out of flame. So sure. the idea that a, a lantern, you know, burned with a flame, blah, 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 as a, as a metaphor. But if you look at the original Green Lantern logo in 1959, the little flame marks are not there. Schnapp adds those later. Oh, okay. Interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's another wow. little, little, you know, Alex, I'll take Schnapp for $300. Yes. <laughs> the Adam uh, logo. That's got that science fiction tilt that Schnapp had done, the, you know, mystery in space logos for DC, yes. Strange Adventures. So the Adam, because it was scientific, he gave it that three-dimensional tilted telescopic, you know, mystery and spacey I, look. I always wondered, too, if that was like almost a shout-out to Forbidden Planet and the way that the title... Yeah, but I don't were. even think Forbidden Planet was the first ones to do that three-dimensional, tilted, you know, okay. perspective. Okay. I think maybe, you know, I, I don't know, De really the Destination Moon. you got to really okay, do your research maybe, to see... Yeah, or even maybe some of the cliffhangers might have even done it. That's what I'm saying. It's like oh. you really got to do a search to see yeah, that's fair. who really came up with... Uh, that first three-dimensional, it's often metal in space kind of letters, you know? You, you, we were talking about old movies before we started recording, and here's a good sidetrack for you in this period. Uh, do, you, do you watch the Rocky Jones space movies? Rocky Jones. Do you know Rocky Jones or no? i never heard of it. Oh, man. Mystery Science Theater did parodies of them. They were, uh, I believe I know they were Commander made... Cody, you know, Rocket Man, the guy with the helmet. Certainly. Yes, now that was a that's Republic serial. Man was, that's what a Rocketeer was. Rocketeer, so, absolutely. No, Rocky Rocky Jones was, was very much regional? Was like this regional in Chicago only, where you grew up. No, I don't think it was. I don't think it was Chicago. It might have been LA TV. I don't know, but it was early TV. Never heard of. It. And they and either they made them for TV first or the movies first, but it was in that same period as Radar Men of the Moon and and uh, things like that. But I but this was. Um, 
actually, I think a lot of Wally Wood design was evocative of Rocky, the Rocky Jones aesthetic. But it's uh, Mystery Science Theater did a couple uh, parodies of a couple of Rocky Jones movies. They're on YouTube. And they're hilarious, and they're very fifties. Send me a link along with that other. I thing will. I absolutely, I, I absolutely <laughs> about salt and pepper. Peter Lawford and Sammy Davis. I'm Davis telling you, name dropping all these things I've never heard of. This is good stuff, man. But I all right. So back to back to Schnapp and back to the fifties. We were talking about the house ads, and it's good timing that you are presenting this stuff because I'm sure you're aware of the current outcry from the newbies, the kids that now see these half page house ads. Now, granted, they're they're advertising. Twix, and they're really ugly ads. Okay, but are uh, the ads DC house I mean, ads, or are they no, commercial they're not. products? They're, they're commercial products. They're, it's Nick Lachey, Jessica Simpson's old uh, husband. Okay, that, that's uh, and different it's, than the house ads. Oh, no, no, no. And I, well, wait, because my point is, they're complaining. They're just complaining that there's a, a half-page ad. Interrupting in the, the flow of the story. Exactly. And it's funny because, again, growing up when I did, and, and certainly – you know, I mean, Bronze Age was really when I started reading comics in like '72. Right. But I certainly read enough uh, twelve-cent comics that were, you know, still sitting of course, in and reprints and stores. all those reprints. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> that I would see the half-page house ads of DC. So maybe, you know, even though it was a commercial thing, versus, hey, read this comic as well. It, house ads just didn't bother me. And also, I grew up on the Marvel um, messages in the uh, in the gutters. Uh, always teasing upcoming. If I upcoming. remember correctly, the way the DC half-page snap ads were used is that DC didn't interrupt the middle of the story for uh, an ad. I think they used the half-page to end the story with, or right. they would gang up two snap half-page ads and make a full page. I don't, I don't think they literally interrupted the middle of a story. Now, well, again, this is, this is the era of eleven-page stories and eight-page stories, so it was easy to sandwich. You know, I, I, think, I think if, when they would do their what they would call a book-length novel, DC Comics, a twenty-four-page story, maybe at the chapter breaks they have sure. a half-page ad. All I'm sure. saying is they never put a half-page ad in a sense in the middle of a story to break it up. Oh, yeah. Either at the end of a chapter or at the end of the story. And that's the only legitimate way to do a half-page ad. That's fair. But I think sure. what DC's doing is the opposite. They're interrupting the story with the yeah. ad. Yeah, no, they are. Okay. They are. That's, and I, and, okay. I mean, no, and that yeah. is bogus. Yeah, that is kind of lousy. But again, I, I, I understand, hey, it's still commercial art. If it helps pay for the books, fine, whatever. But I agree with you. Regardless... The cool thing is about Schnapp's things, these were house ads. They were coming attractions for either books that were also out later that month or simultaneously or coming up. But they were like watching a movie preview of, hey, you've got to check out this story. Yes. And, and, they're, and they're gorgeous. They're gorgeous. They would take uh, sometimes cover, you know, usually cover art, a snippet of the cover usually art. Usually the cover, usually the best ads, the whole cover is there. That's true. You know, on the one hand, you look at these beautiful house ads, and they're total advertisements. I mean, they're ads. Yes. They're ads oh, for the And yet, just like the history of great movie po – I mean, a movie poster, in a sense, is a big ad for the movie. Absolutely. It's a poster. So, you know, as a creator, art director, copywriter, illustrator, all the, the hats I've worn, you know, the goal is you want to solve the problem – 
of what the job is, which is it's got to advertise the comic. And yet you also want to create, in a sense, a work of art. Right, you're you're trying to do both if you can. Oftentimes you fail, you can only do the other or whatever. But to me, the goal is can you do both? Can it be a beautiful advertisement and a piece of yeah. commercial art that gives the client what they want? And can you also make an aesthetically pleasing, beautiful to look at, frame worthy piece of art? And to me, almost every one of Schnapp's house ads is frame worthy poster size piece of art period absolutely no they're great i mean and yes they're also great ads they they have arrows pointing to the cover i mean it practically says <laughs> buy this issue but you know what that's what's also great about them is that they are pure ads they've got catchy headlines but again yes. he takes the words and brings them to life he brings them to life onomatopoeically so that the words look like what they sound like. You know, words that smash and words that are exploding, literally the letter forms explode and are smashed into pieces. If the letters are, if the words are talking about the flash is being squeezed by Gorilla Grodd, Schnapp <laughs> does the letters looking like they're getting squeezed. And again, it's a beautiful thing that hand lettering is what, unlike typeset type, that's what's the beauty of hand lettering, is that it can really bring letters and words to life, like typeset type struggles to do, because again, that's not really what typeset type is really its strength. So Schnapp took hand lettering and milked it. So that every word, every phrase has its own look, its own life, its own spirit. And when you read the words, like the classic ad that kicks off the Silver Age, just imagine that first Justice League of America ad that just was a crucial film. And all the superheroes together in one book. You got to remember, the young kids of the Silver Age, they don't remember the Golden Age when there was the Justice Society of America. That was the distant past. They weren't born. There weren't back issues then. Right. Nobody knew of those comics. They had disappeared into the, you know, sandy time of history or whatever. But you know what I mean? All of a sudden with the Silver Age, um, uh, man, I just lost my train of thought. Well, well Snap was able to kind of represent these. and was oh, I was going to say Justice League. So the words just yeah. imagine literally – spark the imagination of an entire generation that was turned on to this new what later became known by the early comic historians they called it the silver age because there was this renaissance of new superheroes based on the old ones the old ones they called the golden age and the new ones what's after the golden age but the silver age and those are the only two metal ages that make sense after the silver age which is the end of the 60s i just call the 1970s the 70s I don't oh, you don't, you don't do the bronze age? Yeah, you know, because to me, bronze, and then after bronze, plat, it begins to become ludicrous. To me, bronze really says nothing about what the 70s were about, whereas something can be said for silver and the 1960s, given that the golden age is the golden age. Gold and silver are like the yin-yang. It's the only one it, that makes sense to me. Well, and I guess because of the Olympics, you know, people think gold, silver, bronze. Well... 
You know what you I mean? That just as a third age, you know. You want to call the seventies the Bronze Age? Be my guest. I call the comics of the seventies just the a decade. I call the eighties the eighties, the nineties, and so on. Because don't you? I, I, I mean, a case can be made: gold, silver, bronze. So but, I would, what? I will give you the seventies as the Bronze Age, but I, I personally have never referred to it as that. And I, like grew, a, and I grew up through the seventies buying all those comics in the seventies, so. It's not like I wasn't part of it. So, oh, no, but and I, maybe but that's it, why living through it, I'll never think of it as the Bronze Age. That's fair, and I, and, you know, I, I, it was something that you know, like I said, I, I started in '72. Right. Uh, in terms of buying my own comics, I know as uh, a very small four-year-old kid, I remember getting yeah. twelve and twenty-five cent giants, cool. you know, in '69 and '70 or whatever. So, um, but anyway, regardless. Don't you think, much like movies, there's a bit of a hangover of a style that creeps into the next decade? And like we say, the Silver Age starts with The Flash, but you look at the Weisinger Superman starts in like 58. The Batman still has that Shelley Moldoff and, 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 and Sprang Batman kind of... Batman doesn't get a Silver Age until 64 when Infantino... Right, Infantino. Right, right the yeah. Infantino new look, exactly. So that's why there are these kind of sliding eras for each specific well, but, no, but, see, but like I said, Silver Age, the consensus is pretty firm. Oh, no, I, and again, for the, for the majority, for, yes, but like I said, Superman and Batman still look like their pre-Silver Age counterparts until right, but, these shifts of right, Kurt Swan and, 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 and Fantino on Batman. Right, the Silver Age, the kickoff, is more about the revamped heroes than it sure. is about Superman or Batman. Because, again, That's fair. Super, yeah. Superman, you really couldn't change him. The real Silver Age of Superman begins really when Kurt Swan starts drawing him right. pretty much full-time in 57. No, yeah, the first cover. The point yeah. is, it, it all... The key to write the Fortress of Solitude episode. Right. Irish, it, was right? In the, it was in the ether. It was in the DC air. Weisinger... Yeah. Again, this was a couple of years after they sued Captain Marvel out of existence. So a couple of years after that, Weisinger hires, just like William Randolph Hearst, hired all the guys from the Pulitzer to his paper. Weisinger hires Otto Binder and all those guys, Kurt Schaffenberger, that were all doing stuff for Captain Marvel, brings them to D.C., and yeah. Binder goes on to give Superman what he gave to Captain Marvel, which is the line extension. The Supergirl and the the Super Pets and the Super This and the Super That. Yeah, and yeah, that and so so the Superman thing again. Batman Silver Age is the last uh, holdout of the DC main characters to go through a renaissance. So his Silver Age doesn't begin until '64. But sure. for all intents and purposes, it's really about the other heroes and the new logos that Schnapp sure. gave to these new heroes. And then, of course, that kicks off the Marvel Age because they're knocking off the Justice League with Fantastic Four. And the 60s are on full bloom. Yeah, absolutely. And ironically, um, the end of Schnapp's career happens. Uh, it's a guess that he might have been part of those uh, era of creators who were looking for health benefits and health insurance because, God, the guy was there for you know, thirty almost thirty full yeah, years, right? I mean, I think again, nobody knows exactly how it went down, but basically, they forcibly retired Schnapp in '68. You're kind of leapfrogging over an oh, point that I yeah, bring up in my exhibition and lecture is that I mentioned before that Infantino's 
artistic style, like all the other Silver Age artists, Kubert, his contemporaries, Kubert and Kane, their styles mature in the Silver Age, and Infantino especially becomes the best cover artist for DC in terms Absolutely. of his covers for Adam Strange and uh, you know then Batman and Flash were selling the most, prompting Erwin Donenfeld in '67 to make him basically art director, laying out all of DC's covers. But yeah. I make it a point to show that as Infantino's cover style matures as an artist, it was along with Schnapp's lettering that went along with it as a great typographer, you know, great type makes art look better. Bad type makes great art look bad. So Schnapp's great lettering coincided his artistic career as Infantino's artistic career matures and together in a sense, and I make it a point to show those incredible covers, especially after the Batman TV show hits in 66, Schnapp's lettering almost takes center stage along with Infantino's art because of the pows and the zaps and the Roy Lichtenstein effect of the mid-60s. So Schnapp's lettering, along with Infantino's covers, which become more designy and graphic and diagrammatic, it works with Schnapp's lettering hand-in-hand. But then, in a weird type of betrayal that I sort of indirectly point out in my exhibit, if you read between the lines, is that when Infantino is given the executive overseer of art director, then editorial director in 68, and eventually publisher. This coincides with all of DC's old timers in the Silver Age, Gardner Fox, Arnold Drake, all those guys going to get health benefits. But in terms of the lettering and the house ads, Infantino seemed to prefer the work of another DC letterer under Schnapp named Gaspar Saladino. And he ended up favoring Saladino, who I'm sure was younger. Schnapp in 1968 was, I think, 75. And the bottom line is, and Neil Adams was there. They said they basically forcibly retired him to Florida in 68. And Neil Adams predicted that if they retire him to Florida, he was the kind of guy that loved to come to work that if they retire him to Florida, he'll die within a year. Well, guess what, John? Neil Adams predicted it right. He died wow. in July of 1969 at the wow. age of 76, I think. Man. Unborned, unmourned. And like I said, the years pass. His, uh, you know, Saladino. I look at Saladino as Salieri to Schnapps Mozart. Now, wait, was Saladino the guy that did a lot of the Nick Card Cardi covers as well? Well, you mean did the lettering? From, uh, yes. Again, Nick Cardi has a few different eras. Uh, okay. The Aquaman well, logo I, is Schnapp, but the, late, right. the later Teen Titans logo. Yes, is, that's what I'm talking the about. The later yeah. one is uh, Saladino. Saladino did well, a lot of logos. Joe Cuber seemed to like his lettering because... The Enemy Ace logo, the R Army at War, okay. not R Army War, um, um, Sergeant Rock logo. Yeah, Sergeant Rock. The, um, I'm talking about Losers. the early 60s one that has the patch in the middle of it. Uh, again, we're not sure exactly, but we think that's Saladino. The point is, is 
in Schnapp's lettering helped make Infantino's covers look great that Absolutely. made Donenfeld award him with the executive position. And instead of bringing Schnapp along, he basically says, hey, Ira, thanks for getting me here. Goodbye. Oh, yeah. I, oh, I like no, no, no. Sound I understand that. lettering better. And listen, there are people that love Saladino's lettering. Robbie Reed loves Saladino. Well, and I was going to say, some of those, uh, like you said, those later Teen Titan kind of Cardi covers and, and Aquaman covers that, granted, it was a it was a Schnapp logo as far as the, like like Aquaman, but it was that lettering of, you know, kind of... No, but he, I, he, I, did, he did a... Um, he did a new... T- uh, the, the new Teen Titans logo uh, in the... In the Early oh, 70s, I, is yes, yes, yes. Um, I, I think Aquaman the, kept the stuff. But I know what you're talking about. And then he did these houses that I, in my lecture, I point out, I find, I find uh, very ugly. I find Saladino's letter forms gawky, uh, overextended, and they fight the art that they're meant to harmonize with and basically sell. You know, we're taught as graphic designers that when you're designing type to go with a, a photograph, an illustration, whatever that is, you're not supposed to fight the art, and you're certainly not supposed to distract from the art. Type is supposed to harmonize with the art, and again, type is an invisible art. When it's working well and it's beautiful, you almost don't even notice it because you're supposed to be noticing the photograph or the illustration that the type is going along with. And I think Schnapp does that beautifully in his house ads. When you look at Saladino's house ads, it's the exact opposite of what I just said. The letter forms fight with the art. They override the art. They crowd the art. They clutter the art. Ugh. Horrible. Horrible. (laughs) No, I I do see what you're saying, and I'm looking at uh, The Creeper, The Brave and Bold, like you say, Enemy Ace as well, Johnny Double. He apparently, did he do the Avengers logo? Avengers from Marvel? Yeah. I don't know. No, there's Mar- a, there's... Marvel is uh, Artie Simic and Joe Rose and a bunch of other Okay, they, yeah, that would make sense. Did he do Firestorm? Well, now you're getting into a later era, and that might be guys like Todd Klein and stuff. I don't really That's know the later, the later era. I really just... Okay. No worries. I love Snap, and I know Saladino, yes. but I don't <laughs> like Saladino. You know, there are some pieces he did, again, that I like, that his kind of style, which is, uh, like I said, you know, it's funny. Robbie Reed calls it Irish snap on acid. That's what he calls uh, Saladino. So he <laughs> likes the kind of weird, gawky, you know, uh, letter forms that are going all over the place. I love the discipline and the authority of snap. And I'm just, you know, it's like discussing whether you like Joe Sinnott as Kirby's best thinker or Mike Royer. I'm a Joe Sinnott guy. So in this case, Joe Sinnott is like Schnapp and Royer is like Saladino. Okay. I, like, I, don't, I don't dislike Mike Royer, but I can appreciate the Joe Sinnott-like favoritism. But I do think, I think Royer did okay. Uh, when he, when he was Are you Kirby. kidding me? Royer has so many fans. Don't worry about it. Oh, man. I'm oh, I know. Saying, I, I, I'm sure Saladino has his fans. Like I said, most prominent being Robbie Reed. Sure, man. No, no. And that is, and by the way, people should read that 10-part blog as well because it'll really give you such a great information about Schnapp and a greater appreciation. But more importantly, and also as we're releasing this, I know that 
like you say, the the exhibit. Give me the name again of the of the museum. It's, it's at. the Type Directors Club. It's not a museum. It's okay. a, it's a trade organization, but they have an exhibit space on um, 36th Street in Manhattan between 8th and 9th Avenue. Coincidentally, right around the corner from the Penn Station Post Office with Schnapp's lettering, so you can take a walking tour and see Schnapp's Roman letters. And then awesome. come to my exhibit and see the Superman logo blown up 14 feet long. And you're going to be there Wednesday as well as we're I'm recording this? I'm actually going to be there this Wednesday morning because my, my friend that helped install the exhibit and came up with the kind of monofilament wire um, armature so that the Schnapp logos look like they're suspended in space. Um, that's why when I say you have to see this exhibit, there's, no, there's never been an exhibit like it in terms of comic art, trust me. And will it still be up? It'll be up until September 25th. Oh, anyway, I'll right. be there Wednesday morning. I was going to say, I was so, I'll be there Wednesday so morning because we have to repair some pieces that have, like, fallen down. So I'll be there Wednesday morning, and then it's on until September 25th. It's Monday through Friday. You have to email the Type Directors Club executive director. It's not really open to the public. You sort of have to make an appointment to see it. It's a little okay. weird that way, but, okay. you know, it's Monday through Friday, like 11 to 4 p.m. or so. But like if you uh, if you just go to um, tbc.org or you know my website has uh, the links and all that and I'm sure John you'll give out the specific links and things. Yeah, send me. Yeah, please send me the prop the proper links and I'll put them in the uh, in the post. Yeah, the, the point uh, is, yep. is um, you know it's on to September 25th, so people have plenty of time, especially anybody planning a trip to New York City the rest of the summer. Definitely, uh, you know, try to see the Schnapp exhibit. Because you'll love it. And also, you're going back to the Connecticut Comic Con coming up, and you did a presentation for your Silver Age book last year. This year, you're doing the, uh, the Schnapp presentation. Well, this year, I'm doing, just like last year, I'm doing three lectures in three days. I think uh, Friday, I'm doing Silver Age, uh, which is sort of based on my book, which I'll be selling at a table there. Saturday, I'll be doing um, um, Schnapp, so the lecture I just gave at San Diego... I'll be bringing back to the East Coast and doing it there uh, because there'll be a whole other month for the Schnapp exhibit. So people will hopefully see the presentation and go see the exhibit. And then um, uh, Sunday, it's the 75th anniversary of the Spirit, and Mitch Halleck, who's the organizer of Connecticut Comic-Con, is a big Spirit fan. So it's like, you know, I've never really done a visual lecture on Eisner's Spirit, but I've done enough uh, articles and essays and things about him and about the spirit. I've collected enough images that I can put uh, a visual lecture together. So I'm going to be doing that and debuting that at Connecticut Comic Con that Sunday. I think it's August 16th. That's great. Yeah, that's excellent. No, very cool, man. No, there. Uh, also, uh, you have uh, YouTube uh, videos of your presentations. You did an excellent presentation on Rod Serling, and also your Twilight Zone book from years ago. Um, yeah, people should people should seek that out on YouTube. And um, is your Weisinger uh, Superman thing on uh, YouTube? Oh, I've got like like forty YouTube videos of all various things. A lot of my lectures, the Superman Weisinger's there. If you're a Superman fan, man, I've got Superman exhibit art. I've got a eulogy I did for Kurt Swan. His family he was present, and this is in 1996 when he passed away. I've got, you know, a lot of my lectures, Jews and Comics. I've got a yes. Jack Kirby lecture, Yaakov Kurtzberg, King of Comics. Yes, I remember that from there. I've got, uh, oh yeah, my art and comic book art that I did last year at San Diego 
the relationship between fine art, comic art, that, uh, you know, I did, like I said, for San Diego, that's there. Uh, trust me, if, if you love comics history, there's so much comics history in my material on YouTube. Um, and like I said, the Schnapp lecture that I gave at the opening, May 14th, is up. A little video of the opening itself, so you can see the exhibit, is on my YouTube channel. So, um, yeah, just go there and or go to my website. My YouTube channel is linked to there. You'll see everything one way or the other. That's terrific, man. No, I think uh, I'm sure a lot of people are going to seek this stuff out. I know they did last year when we spoke about your Silver Age book, which turned out excellent. It's a beautiful coffee table book. If you are going to the Connecticut Con, or I know Arlen will set up at New York Comic Con as well, uh, seek this book out because uh, it, it'll look really nice on your coffee also, table. Also, John, you know, uh, this Saturday I'm going to be at the Garden State Comic Fest doing oh, my cool. Silver Age lecture. That's Saturday the 25th in Morristown, uh, Garden State Comic Fest. Again, I'll give you the link for that. But I'll be there Saturday selling my book and lecturing on the Silver Age, I think at 2.30 in the afternoon on Saturday. So I think that's the next thing. Yeah, and then comes Connecticut Comic Con in, in mid-August. That's excellent, man. And then, like I said, I'm sure we'll see you in, uh, in, uh, in New York. Yeah, I'm um, waiting to well. hear whether I lecture there. You know, they're very uh, – you know, I've lectured there every year. But, like, the last uh, – they had this June special edition thing. And man, they, I was there at my table selling my book, but they didn't let me lecture. You know, they didn't choose oh, my bad. lecture, so it's weird. I've lectured well, for them every year since '07. Uh, okay, because you know? yeah, I, I I remember seeing the the Weisinger and the and the King of Comics uh, yeah. panels there and stuff. I but, did my Twilight Zone lecture there years before. That's cool. Oh yeah, that's what I'm saying. It was a shock that they wouldn't accept my um my lecture this year. They're very um mercurial in that way. Yeah, it's no, I, no, I, I understand, and no, it's uh, I, there's a lot of competition for for convention programming, and I'm always pleased that comics history is still important to the big cons like New York and San Diego. But I, I do sometimes worry that we might be losing uh, real estate, and it's like I, I, I really don't want to see that go away, especially because sometimes it's very frustrating. I think there's almost a disconnect, and uh, people give up and think, oh, well, there's no really record. I guess we'll never know who really wrote that or who drew that. And it's like, no, actually, there's lots of current sources. The Tomorrow's guys, I think, do a great job in their magazines. And, uh, and uh, you know, I mean, you've got uh, certainly IDW, Hermes Press, and, uh, and Dark Horse and some of the others that are bringing back. Hey, we're in a golden age of comic book history. If you're in yeah, comic man. history. But that's the thing we need. We need <laughs> the archive like, you know, also. Well, yes. But that's the thing. We've got the artist editions and stuff like that, but I wouldn't have heard of Irish Snap had you not, you know, literally right. at San Diego this year, do you know this story? And I'm like, no, I don't. This is fantastic. And again, no. you know, I ran into Michael Allred, one of my favorite artists, uh, the night before San Diego, that Friday night at the Eisner Awards. And I've known him over the years, and we've corresponded, but I got a chance to really talk to him after the Eisner Awards, and I said, you know, Mike, I know you love the 60s Silver Age. You pay homage to it all the time. I'm doing a lecture tomorrow on Irish Snap. And he goes, who? Well, I turn him on that night. There you go. And sure enough, the next day, I look out into the audience, and who do I see sitting there? Michael Allred. That's fantastic. So he yeah. came, and he Very was cool. really touched and blown in, but he never knew afterwards we talked. He never knew all that stuff, but he loved it all. So 
to feel that I turned on Michael Allred, who you would think would have known about Schnapp or Dial B for Blog or all that stuff, but obviously the fact that he doesn't know that and the fact that I've turned him on to that is a beautiful thing. You know, Danny Fingeroff has been talking about trying to like put together um, kind of a, a uh, database of a lot of comics history that's online and just scattered all over the place. And I and uh, you know we've we we finally talked a bit about it at San Diego getting together. Dinah Schutz actually told me to get in touch with him and and you know let him know about my my word balloon archive of the various conversations I've had. Mm. And yeah, you know, I mean, when when the time comes, we really, you know, we should all pull the resources. I know that the Comics Journal has, you know, wonderful audio of uh, God uh, Gil Kane and uh, Robert Crumb having a nice conversation. Mm. Uh, just really interesting little pieces. And YouTube is just littered with both local news that it might have five minutes on, you know, an EC creator or somebody, and and you know, or you've got that artist jam that Joe Kubert. Neil Adams and Mobius are doing in Europe. Yeah, that was filmed. You know, just little things like that. The movie that um, my my friend uh, showed me and that I presented last year at San Diego. That that uh, Canadian. And by the uh, way, this television episode this year. Um, you know that guy Bob Rital. You know him. That yes, absolutely. So he ranked the top San Diego events this year, and number one was the um, John Lewis. Uh, a March graphic novel panel, which I understood being number one. It was oh, historic. Number oh, no, two yeah. was this Jack Kirby video interview that had never been seen since 1984 when it was first shown on uh, local cable access. And that was pretty historical. And um, he voted that number two best event in San Diego this year. And my snap thing, he voted number three. Yeah, that's pretty cool. No, Bob's in the Guinness Book of World Records with his Biggest comic collection. Biggest comic collection, yeah. Well, last year at San Diego, we met for the first time because the lecture I did on art and comic book art, he comes up to me. Yes. I never met him. Right after the, the, I finish, right up to the dais, like, well, I'm still up there putting my computer away. Big smile on his face. He goes, Arlen, I run this website, Comic Spectrum. I've been covering the, the San Diego Comic Convention for 25 years. The presentation you just gave is the greatest presentation on comics I've ever seen. And last year, cool. he ranked my lecture the number two event. And what was number? And what was number one? I don't remember what was number one. He bought a piece of Alex Ross original art. So for him, that was his number one event. But <laughs> as an asterisk, what he was really saying was, my event was the best event. No, I was I was in his top ten. I think I was like number seven yeah. or number eight or something like that, which was very nice. No, he's a he's a, a great, knowledgeable comic uh, collector, very knowledgeable, and uh, former podcaster as well. He used to be on uh, Comic Book Page. Did not. Uh, I, I, yeah, I, like so. I said, I, I met him at the dais, and I bought him a drink, and I said, Bob, oh, yeah. you know, yeah, you man. get me. So, uh, <laughs> so he came to Schnapp, and you know, uh, I didn't get to see him after Schnapp, so I didn't know what he thought. And then, you know, he got very busy, and a week later, he puts out, you know, his top ten, and there I am, number three. So it's nice to know that, like I said, he really gets me. Um, like I said, you get me, Bob Bertal gets me. There's like a handful of people I call the Arlen Army that kind of really get what I'm, what I'm doing. We're like the Jedi Knights, you know what I mean? I'm Obi-Wan. You know? <laughs> 
that's fine. Yeah. <laughs> I wanted to ask. It's, I've got a DVD in my hand that I bought recently from Amazon. Uh, speaking of uh, the Twilight Zone and Rod Serling, these are Rod Serling, a couple of Rod Serling Studio Ones, not the obvious ones, but it's the Arena and the Strike. And I wanted to know if you'd ever seen them. Never seen them, always wanted to. I never saw this one that's supposed to be brilliant, the Velvet. Have you ever heard the one called the Velvet Alley? I have. I bought it, actually. You, uh, you it? can get it. Yeah, you can get it from Amazon. It's tough. It's from a kinescope. So it's, I it's, know, but that one is the one that's most autobiographical. Yes, yes. It's it's like his comment on... And it's yeah. Art Carney as the Serling doppelganger? Did I get that yep. right? And, and Jack Klugman is his agent that he screws okay. up. So how perfect is that? You get the odd couple ahead of their time. Once again, Sir, That's true. Sir, That's right. Serling strikes again, years ahead of his well, time. Also, um, yeah, it's it's just... I'm a huge, like, it's funny, I, I was just uh, on Turner Classic Movies a few weeks ago. They showed The Late Show from the early 70s, the Art Carney, Lily Tomlin movie. And, yeah, Art Carney really had that great streak of, like, comedy drama along with his classic roles. And, you, you know, people forget how strong he was. And, no, absolutely, Velvet Alley is a good example of that. Um, it's, it's neat. I mean, I, you... Yeah, but, you like, have, Velvet Alley, nobody's seen it. It's like, it's great, supposedly, yeah, but it's, but it's no, hard it's, to see. Yeah, you can. Like I said, they've got it's a it's a very uh, faded kinescope, yeah. but you can appreciate it and and still, if you want to watch it, uh, it's, it is available on Amazon. But yeah, the two, uh, the arena and the strike. Uh, the arena is a politics thing, and the strike. Oh, I know is what they're about. about. I just have never seen them. Yeah, I'm 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 curious to watch them. And uh, man, they got great cast. It's Wendell Corey and Chester Morris in uh, the arena, and it's. Uh, James Daly from, um, was it Medical Center, his old show? Uh, Daly he's, was he's, on Willoughby, uh, the Great Twilight episode, and he's the father oh, yeah. of Tyne Daly of Cagney and Lacey fame. Okay, was he, wasn't he also uh, in, was it Requiem for Methuselah, the original episode, uh, series Star Trek episode, where he's the immortal guy? Uh, I'm not that familiar, as familiar with Star Trek as I am with Twilight Zone. I, no think, I think he was on a Star Trek, so that, that's probably it. But I, again, I'm not sure because Mr. I don't Flint. I don't know my um, Star okay. Trek as closely. But I believe, yeah, he's like Da Vinci and he's Brahms and he's just these various like historic like great yeah. minds, and it's because he's this immortal and you know has just been like living these different lives all the, all these years. Um, yeah, great actor. But yeah, I was wondering because uh, no, I lo- I've seen patterns. Uh, that's another great Serling. You know, that's that's the one that really put him on the map as a television yeah, writer yeah. back in the day. Requiem for a heavyweight. Certainly, I'm a huge fan of. Uh, comedian you know, is brilliant. Have you ever comedian, seen a comedian? Oh, ab- absolutely, and it's like, yeah, you know, Mickey Rooney was such a sad kind of uh, parody of himself at the end of his life. But man, I'll tell you, you you cannot deny the power of Mickey Rooney, and the comedian is a great mid career. Like, wait a minute, this guy really is the shit. Oh, the and comedian he, is... I mean, he was nuts and he was controlling... The comedian, and I, I, first of all, the comedian is brilliant. It yeah, looks, gonna, when you watch it, the way it's staged, the way it's oh, photographed, yeah. the camera yeah. moves, I mean, it looks like it could have been filmed yesterday. It's so modern-looking. Yes. And that it was made for live television. And the set and design, that, I mean, that yes. giant face that he comes through... Is so Andy Warhol ahead of its time. Once again, it's really just unbelievable how ahead of his time Serling was. Well, that's why those uh, television anthology shows fascinate me, especially the live television ones, because 
Plumet, Frankenheimer, Frank, Franklin Schaffner, all these great filmmakers really cut their teeth doing this live television. And, okay. you know, you really – and also the difference that, uh, you know, um, the, the CBS shows had more of a flowing camera and really allowed the camera to kind of truck along in a very modern way to move from scene to scene, whereas NBC was very much the button-down – you know, camera cuts and multiple cameras and, uh, the, you know, the different styles that come through because of it. Very interesting to compare, you know, the the uh, the Playhouse 90s to the Studio Ones to the U.S. Steel Hours and all yeah, that. Yeah, I never that's got into that closely to really oh, man. show well, the difference I, in look. Yeah, that's, no, I love that stuff. And then again, you know, um, by, by the late 50s, then uh, Serling, you know, does does Twilight Zone, which is really just a progression from the anthology stuff he was doing before. I no, I'm fascinated by Serling and it's it's a shame that he died as young as he did. It would have been great to see if he could have come back. You know, because it really was sad near the the early seventies. It didn't seem you know, I, I don't know. Tell me, like what, you know, was he doing okay or was it really just, you know, grabbing the money that he could from from Night Gallery and the occasional books and you know, doing film narration like Chariots of the Gods and stuff? Well, Serling, you know, he died thinking that he didn't really succeed. You know, he had dreams of wanting to write the great American novel, the great American play, the great American screenplay. And the achievements he did, like Seven Days in May and Planet of the Apes, most people don't know that it was Serling who took that novel and gave it the twist that set it on Earth so that that final scene with Charlton Heston and the Statue of Liberty, that's Serling, that comes right out of Twilight Zone. And most yeah. people to this day don't know that that may be one of the greatest endings in movie history to rank along with Rosebud at the end of Citizen Kane. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So the point is, is, you know, Serling didn't write the great American novel. He didn't have a successful show after Twilight Zone. He didn't have creative control on Night Gallery. So he dies in 1975 at the age of 50, just as, if you look at the year 75, Serling's metaphorical children, the Steven Spielbergs, the George Lucases, yeah. the James Camerons, the Stephen Kings. In 75, you get Spielberg's Jaws, you get Stephen King's Carrie. In other words, Serling dies before he really gets to see and understand the impact that the Twilight Zone, which he felt, you know, was okay. He wrote a few good episodes and that was it. He had no idea the impact the Twilight Zone would have on the generation of guys like David Lynch and all the guys I just mentioned who were the creators of our modern Science fiction, fantasy, and horror were all teenagers when Serling was doing The Twilight Zone and lighting the sparks of their imaginations, as Stephen King has written about in a nonfiction book that he did about a survey of the horror field called Dance Macabre in 1983. He does a whole chapter on The Twilight Zone and the impact it had on him and his generation, of which you would count. Spielberg, Lucas, David Lynch, you name it, James sure. Cameron, all Serling's children that unfortunately Serling never got to see their impact on our current culture because he died at the age of 50 
just as these guys were taking their place on the main stage of American popular culture. Yeah, you almost have to wonder, and and you know this story, uh, and it's one of the prints that I bought finally after admiring it for so many years at, on Jim Steranko's table. The way that Spielberg and Lucas contacted Steranko to come up with the con- you know the the conceptual look for Indiana Jones. Well, you wonder if if Serling were around, yeah, it would have been nice to see a Spielberg or a Lucas maybe call or or a Stephen King or somebody and going, hey Rod, <laughs> we need well, you. Like I said, you know? it's not so much that. I wish Serling had lived so that he could have made a comeback. It's really that I just wish he would have lived sure. to have seen the influence and impact that the Twilight Zone would have on guys like J.J. Abrams and the guys that did Lost, which was sure. a total takeoff on the Twilight Zone. You know, Serling had a series in 1970, the year before he does the Night Gallery, and it's a series about a group of young people that get um, – stranded on a desert island after their plane crashes. Lloyd Bridges show. Does that sound familiar? Wasn't Lloyd Bridges on that show? No. Oh, okay, because, yeah, I no, thought Lloyd that was Bridges a... was in a Western in 1965 called The Loner, which Right, failed. I knew that. But I knew it was that, called but, yeah, The New one... People, and basically, J.J. Oh. Abrams and Carlton Cuse and Damon Lindelof took The New People, and ba- which only ran, I think, 18 episodes, one season, that was it, and they took it and they developed Lost out of it. I see, because yeah, there is a there's a pilot for a uh, uh, you know a backdoor pilot that was a TV movie where there were there were people stranded on a weird island, and Lloyd Bridges was the pilot in uh, of this television pilot, but he was the air, he was the plane pilot that gets lost. Well, that sounds uh, like I, something else years later. I see. Okay. And it probably was. But yeah, that's I didn't know about the new people. That's awesome. So this is what I'm saying. Serling's influence. Okay. And then sure. you talk about the comic book influence. I mean, look, Lucas was working in a comic book store in the late 60s and early 70s. And when you look at the source, I mean, the force right. and Darth Vader, oh, it basically comes oh. out of Jack Kirby's fourth world no, where no he had question. Dark Side instead of Darth Vader. And he had the source instead of the force. Absolutely. So, and I maintain in my lectures that comics have always been 25 years ahead of the American culture. I mean, look at the movies they're making now. They're all out of characters that came out of the Silver Age. I mean, sure. it's unbelievable in the sense that, you know, look at Watchmen and Dark Knight. Their, Watchmen was made as a movie in 2009, 26 years after or 23 years <laughs> after it debuted, and That's right. and basically Batman versus Superman, which is coming out next year, right, was essentially will be yeah. 30 years to the year after Dark Knight, which is essentially an adaptation of pretty much that came out. Yes, so, so my I point mean, that I've yeah. been saying yeah. since uh, the 80s that comics have been 25 years ahead of the culture. I mean, look, Alan Moore. In, uh, in the early 2000s, he wanted to do Wonder Woman, but he didn't do it for DC because he didn't want to work with DC. So he creates this strip called Promethea, right. with art by J. Williams III, and it's about, you know, a fucking lesbian, excuse me, lesbian <laughs> superhero who travels through the seven levels of the Kabbalah. I right. mean, can you see right. Hollywood making a movie out of that anytime soon? 
No. Probably. But maybe no. 30 years from now. Maybe. So, maybe. Right. so my That's point cool. is whatever they're doing in comics <laughs> now and whatever they did in comics 10 years ago and 20 years ago, they're not going to be making a movie of it until a couple of years from now. Well, you're right. And, and it's not another decades. Good well, and, and the Frank Miller Daredevil finally showing up on Netflix. So this is, I my, mean, this is my point. Absolutely, man. We, yeah. John, my generation knew when we were 10 years old, post-Batman TV show, which we all hated, is that if Hollywood took superheroes seriously, not jokingly like Batman, that they would be great movies. Well, it only took about 40 years Hey, we live to see it, though. Okay. Of course, we live to see it. But, but <laughs> the point is, is what's happening now, combined with the fact that the computer has caught up with what comics used to only be able to do, special effects-wise, like oh, the Silver Surfer flying and the thing. You bet. And everything oh, yeah. you're seeing now is because, finally, the special effects caught up with what guys like Kirby and Neil Adams used yeah. to only be able to draw on the printed page. Or yep. Jim Steranko. You know, it's funny. I saw the first G.I. Joe movie a couple of years ago, the first sure. one. And, you know, I grew up with the G.I. Joe when he was a soldier. The new G.I. Right. Joe from right. the, the 70s. The bigger, I don't know yeah. that G.I. Joe at all. But <laughs> to see the movie, I guess the first one came out in 2009, maybe, or something like that, 2010. Yeah. And I'm looking at this, I'm going, you know what? This movie is basically Steranko's shield. Oh, it's yeah. essentially S.H.I.E.L.D. Uh, Larry come to life. Larry Hama says that when Hasbro approached him, he took a S.H.I.E.L.D. pitch and basically changed a few things uh, and made them original characters. But, yeah, I know Larry Hama's or, uh, uh, inspiration was, was uh, Steranko's S.H.I.E.L.D. But I'm just saying the way the, the camera moved, the way the ships and the, oh, all sure. the technology, to me it looked like a Steranko uh, S.H.I.E.L.D. You know, brought to life. So the point no is... Question. is you know, the, the influence of comics on film and, and why guys like Lucas and Spielberg would go to Steranko, from a comic point of view, is obvious because we saw this coming years and years and years and decades ago. No, agreed. And, I, uh... Yeah, I was going to say, it's, it's kind of like the way that, the, you know, why, one of the reasons why the Israelis had to wander for 40 years in the desert was because the generation that was tainted by Egypt had to die off before they could enter the promised land. Well, the generation and, and to, in Hollywood, John, that thought exactly. comics were junk, that could only be made camp. Had to die off. They had, had to, to die, die off. off so that the new generation that's greenlighting all this stuff is our generation right. that always thought comics were great. And yep. all these actors that are now taking part, directors, it's like, it's like gay people. All the people that love comics are coming out of the closet. Right. Well, and but like you said too, I mean, no, Jeff Loeb is a prime example in, tar in charge of Marvel Television, exactly. and 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 is a comic is is a guy who grew up loving comics, and now is in a p position of power to say, yeah, but it's got to be more like the comic book or the Marvel film All panel of, of Casada and Bendis and, and Buckley. Finally, yeah, comic book people, and and again, they're in charge. And all the aborted bullshit, like the Spider-Man TV show in '78, <laughs> and all it, to me, even the Hulk TV the show. Movies. I thought I was never a Hulk fan, but I thought the Perino monster looked go like goofy and stupid. The yeah, point but it was is, a good is, show, though. Dramatically, it was a good show. Well, you got to give it. That. Some people I liked it. I never liked. My point is, is that it was always because even when Hollywood did superheroes, they never seemed 
to work with the people that actually did the comics. So what we're right. seeing today is finally what we always wanted, where the comic people, guys like Jeff Johns, are both in yes. the movies as well as in the comics. So finally we're getting to see. Now, on the other hand, how come I'm seeing a guy named Hawkeye who's just a guy in a black turtleneck with a bow and arrow? Where is that medieval Don Heck 1965 <laughs> costume brought to life? I don't like the fact that Captain America runs around in these movies without his mask or helmet on. I mean, they're almost afraid of actually doing superheroes. Yeah, but they're also, and I understand that they're, they're I know, you know that their thinking is, we're paying Chris Evans. The time for, out, here, yeah. better, a, better, a better example is Downey. We're paying Robert Downey Jr. $50 million. We want his face on the time screen. Out of we don't want the helmet. When, I think, who's that actor? Keith Urban? Who's the guy that plays the, in Star Trek, the McCoy role? Oh, Carl Urban. Carl sure. Urban. Yeah, Judge Dredd. Okay. And I never saw the Judge Dredd movie, Carl Urban. I heard it was great. It's amazing. Okay. Oh, it's I missed it when it came around. I got to see it. Yeah, but, that's a Europe, but that, was a made, that was made in the UK where they get it. I'm talking about Hollywood. I'm this just, is the Hollywood okay, attitude. My Go point on. is a great <laughs> actor will subsume himself in a role. And this idea... Oh. That, but Carl's for, not a because we're Carl's. I don't care. Carl's not a Downey Jr. though. No, no, no. There's a difference. Look, There's a difference, okay. Arlen. Hold on. Toby McGuire. Toby McGuire was already a star Ron, when he became Spider-Man. Can I go on. Word in Edgewater here. Oh no, man. we're having a we're having a can conversation. Go on. Well, let me get a word in Edgewater. <laughs> as my answer wants to say. Go on. The fact is, is this is the same old story as Stanley had with Steve Ditko. I want to see Spider-Man more. All of these characters have civilian identities. There's plenty of time for these actors and their egos to get screen time. The point is, is if you make a great Spider-Man movie or a great Iron Man movie, people are going to go see it knowing the actors are under those masks, and there's plenty of scenes for them to be without the masks. But when they're, wet, let me finish, when they're superheroes, they need to be putting on those masks. And I don't buy this idea that because they're big talent, we've got to see them all the time. But I don't think it's the actors' egos. I honestly do think it is the money men in Hollywood. And also, like we've said, that attitude is, is disappearing and dying. And in fact, um, well, Marvel has found a very elegant way of having both Downey Jr. and Iron Man show up. Also, that inside-the-helmet perspective that we okay, get. So my point stroke is, of, stroke of genius. my point is, like I said, the, the guys that have masks like Captain America, there's plenty of scenes of him as Steve Rogers, just oh, yeah. like in the comic book. There was, sure. So my point is, a great actor in a great movie will understand what his role is. And if his role is to wear a mask, you wear the fucking mask. Sorry. <laughs> Yeah, but I also think. Um, Listen, well, I, I don't disagree with you. That's the thing, Arlen, the and I'm not. Movie, and I'm making apologies for them. I'm just explaining as I as I. I know what they're understanding. You don't have to explain that you know. to me. All right, well, I'm there you saying go. that doesn't make it right, and that doesn't. No, mean, I agree. That's well, but I, like I said, I would love to see, in a sense, a superhero movie where the great actor is is never seen, and all of a sudden the box office to fall apart because we, the audience, didn't get to see his face too. Well, you know, I wish it was. I wish it had, I, and it did okay. But you got to hand it to V for Vendetta, because and again, it was part of the story, 
and it was this very Phantom of the Opera sort yeah. of thing where you never saw the face because it was damaged, and you just saw the Guy Fox mask. And good God, uh, and I always forget his name. He's Enron or Elrod in uh, the Hobbit movies. Uh, Hugh. Uh, was, uh, Hugh. Um, it's Hugh something. What's his last name? Uh, is it Hugh? Yes. He and he said, of course, uh, Agent uh, course. Smith. The Matrix. Uh, Matrix. Uh, um, man, it's on tip my tongue. All right, I'm, I'm it's, looking it's him up. Hugh something. Is it? All right, here, we'll, we'll get I, it. I, I'm almost positive his first name is Hugh. <laughs> and we screeched to the halt as we searched for a name. It's Hugh something. It, it, is, it is Hugh something. Um, Hugo. 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 What did I say? Hugh. Okay. Hugh. Yeah, you were close. Oh, Hugo. Hey, I, hey, Hugh is half a Hugo. Absolutely. Hugo Weaving, amazing Hugo job Weaving, in Fever right. Vendetta. All I'm saying is <laughs> a great actor will understand what his role is. Sure. And this idea that we, the audience, are not going to see these movies – because the actors aren't being shown their faces enough. Again, in the last Avengers movie, during the climactic fight scene, uh, Evans is running around without right. a mask on at all. Right. And I don't buy that. I understand. Well, and also, his, his identity seems reasonably open. That's not the point. Do you see I understand. in the comic books Captain America running around with his mask off? No. Well, actually, no. Well, they but they did come up with that blue and white action suit that Steve did when he was in charge of Shield, uh, and and they incorporated that in the film, and it was in the comics before it was in the film, and they were very smart about Gosh. that. And I, you know, Whatever. but I know what I'm you're just saying. saying I, I I don't disagree with you. Darling. I swear guy, I don't. I don't. That fat <laughs> guy is a guy in a black turtleneck. No, I get it. And with a bow and arrow, I mean, does it's anybody give a yeah. crap about Hawkeye? No, I understand. Well, here, we'll move on. let's move on to other, like, because I want to know your opinion. What do you think of uh, The Flash and Arrow? You know, I never watched The Arrow, and again, the only time I was ever excited about Green Arrow was when Neil Adams did him, you know. With oh, Green really? You didn't, like Mike Rell's, you didn't like Mike Rell's run in the Oh, well, I never liked Mike Rell as an artist. Don't get me started. Oh, okay, because, man, I'll tell you, I'm a, I'm a, I loved <laughs> that term. You're the majority. I had a lot of fans. I never liked his oh, artwork, so I never got into anything Mike Rell did. Go on. But uh, so, so again, but Flash. the idea of an archer doesn't exist as a, as a superhero. So I can't say, like I said, other than Adam's Green Arrow, I've never been excited to follow an archer. So should, I never watched watch the TV this. show, but I have been watching The Flash. Okay. And? Um, you know, I like The Flash more. I don't like the overabundance of the CW, uh, Rob Berlanti, soap opera Teenage sure. romance and the girlfriend, the boyfriend. It's like if you took those flash episodes, you could edit them down to half hours. If you edit out all what we used to call when we were eight years old, the mushy stuff. Sure, sure. <laughs> Do you know that Smallville in Japan does just that? Well, there you go. Which is, and I actually Loeb told me because he was a producer on Smallville. Then um, they would take. Um, the first and second acts, and you would see them at the top of the show in a quick-cut kind of scenes, almost like previously last week on Smallville. That's how they would start the show, with those scenes of the first two acts, and then pick up the story. So the mushy stuff was still wow, in there. Well, but sense. they did, they, they cut it down, and they cut it down to like the, just the now, bare action. Now, conversely, I saw the, the leaked episode of the first uh, Supergirl, Super and I was very, now I'm not a Supergirl fan. I'm not a Wonder Woman fan. I could care less about female superheroes. All my favorites have all been male. 
Um, and yet, I thought Supergirl was really good. I, it's all in the casting. I think the actress they got is really good. It's on CBS, so the budgets were higher. Doesn't have that. Oh yeah. It doesn't have that cheesy CW Vancouver look. You know what I mean? <laughs> you like that? No offense to Vancouver, but you know what? Yeah, I mean. what are you talking about? I got good. I got good Canadian fans, but Supergirl, I, you know, I mean, Supergirl, up there for TV. Supergirl, Supergirl actually looks like it was filmed in L.A. or whatever. It looks like a higher budget. You know, I like Flash uh, because you know it's a little more truthful to the character. Uh, you know, I wish the costume were redder. I don't like the maroon. You know what I mean? It's little things like sure. that. But, you know, listen, The Flash was never one of my favorite characters. I mean, I love Infantino. Oh, Art. I always one of, I, always one of my favorite characters. But, yeah, Go listen, on. honestly, look, the, the, they tried it in 89, so they're trying it now. But, like I said, I like I, I liked The Flash, but I never got into Arrow. And I, and I think... You know, like I said, I'll be getting into Supergirl because oh, no, I agree. Uh, she's really good, and I think Berlanti's style works better for a female character because it's really sympathetic to that kind of you know romance thing, which I think works better with a female character than with a male character. I agree with that, but also it's going to be interesting to see it compete against Gotham at the same time period really? uh, on the same, on the same super- night. Are you kidding yeah. me? Oh no! Monday Monday nights at uh, at at nine. It's both shows, wow. and I and that's very interesting because I think I think Supergirl's going to crush Gotham. But you know I what? Really I do. think nowadays, since everybody, I don't watch. Oh yeah, time shift. I yeah, don't watch shows and sit through the commercials. I only tape shows. The shows that are broadcast with commercials, I, I tape them and I watch them later, and I zip through the commercials. I can't imagine sitting through a broadcast show with commercials. So I think Hollywood realizes that at this point. And this idea that they're on the same time used to matter years ago before people tape shows. Well, we'll see. And I think nowadays I just don't think it matters anymore. Well, we'll we'll see because I don't know. I think think they're going to make it a thing. But I'm telling you, in in reality, the people that love both shows – are going to oh, end up watching both shows. So. Yeah, but 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 not everyone has a cable They factor DVR recording into they the do. Things. Yes, but they do, and that is important. But um, all you have to do is look at some of these other quality superhero shows that didn't get the audience, and I'm just afraid it's going to split the superhero audience. And I think hopefully and likely one of those shows will move off the time slot and find a different night because – I really think it's uh, stupid to well, put two you know, shows against listen, each other. That might happen, uh, but like I said, I think I would put, we'll I would happens. bet my money on that. Like I said, that when they factor in the DVR recording, I bet you the shows come out equal ratings. I look forward to how network television handles these two shows against each other, and further, I think. Uh, where you're watching 11-year-old Bruce Wayne scratch his nose and say, oh, that kind of looks like Batman, and he's kind of doing it like Batman would, versus Supergirl, as Supergirl, right now. And I also saw the pilot, the amount of Kryptonian backstory that they put in the pilot that clearly is laid out for the series. Superman fans are going to go nuts. This is is not Smallville. This is not dicking around with the Superman persona until the very last episode. This is Supergirl yeah. from day one, and it, and I I think it's gonna I think little well, girls and, are and that's what I'm saying. And that's what I liked about it is that they got the action right, they got the way she moves yes. right, 
she, oh, yeah. she's a good actress, so it's all in the cast thing. And I think Berlanti's style is going to work better for Supergirl yes. than for Arrow or Flash. You know, I would recommend seeing this last season of Arrow because... No, people talk about it. They told me about it. It adapts the Rachel Ghoul, Batman, exactly. sword fight. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, but like I said, I just, I can't get... Well, and we're not going to get... We're not, and I understand, we're not going to get a Batman... For my money, it, this is how I reconcile it. We're never going to get a Batman... Or we won't get a Batman series like we wanted. Arrow is as close as we're going to get. And it's really good. It really, I, I have to say, I like it, and I, and I understand. No, like I said, a lot of people you know. do, and that's what I'm saying. I just can't get into it, so... But whatever, I'm getting, I'm getting, you know, the Berlanti uh, feel through the Flash and the Supergirl. So, there you go. Uh, by the way, did you see Ant Man? Not yet. Have you seen it? Yeah, I saw it last night. Yeah. Yeah, you know, it was pleasant. I liked it. Listen, I. Okay. Who is an Ant Man fan? I mean, you know, will the real Ant Man fans stand up? You know, well, they I'm never a, knew I'm what to do with Ant Man. You know. Well, yeah, but uh, but I but I do like, and I can appreciate purists not liking the tragedy of Hank Pym. And nobody wants to see like a hero that they like turn into a wife beater. But I do from an. See, but you're talking about wait, wait, slow down. You're talking about the Hank Pym of what the '70s and '80s. He's a wife beater, right? But that, yeah. yeah, but that that. I'm going back to the original Ant Man, oh, sure. whatever. Sure, sure, sure. Silver Age. No, no, no. And I realize the movie is different. But what I, what, that's all I was going to say is that's interesting. From what I hear, of the movie it sounds great, and I'm excited. Uh, well, here's what's kind of interesting from my perspective talking about Silver Age is that they really got to do DC's Adam and, in a sense, are scooping them. So now DC really cannot do the Adam because, you know, Ant-Man never shrunk to subatomic size. It was always, as you know, being size of the Ant. In this movie, he gets to shrink down to subatomic size, which is really what the Adam was all about. Right. And, right. And I'm watching this movie yesterday, and I'm thinking, wow, they're really getting to do the Adam as well. And once again, DC is, you know, behind the uh, time. Yeah, that, that is one of the flaws of Arrow and Flash in presenting Ray Palmer and giving him this suit of armor, which, like which ultimately will shrink. But yeah, right now it's a poor man's Iron Man suit. Well, it and actually looks like that Valiant series from the uh, 90s. What's that, Man of War or something like that? Yeah, Exo Man of War. Exo sure. Man of War. So the point is... Sure. is I looked at that, and I'm like, where is the Gil Kane costume, as you know? Yeah. And the thing yeah. is, is that, once again, Marvel scoops DC and gets there first, and basically says to DC, hey, we're already here, Adam. Good luck. Yep. Yep. No, you're right about that. You're absolutely you know? right about so, that. So, yeah, it's worth seeing, you know, and, and cool. I'll, I'll tell you the other interesting thing, without giving anything away, is that it really shows you the power that these Marvel movies now, in terms of even now... The supporting roles and the little bit roles are some pretty name actors. Like, like in the supporting role of this Ant Man movie is that actor Bobby Cannavale. You know who he is? No. Bobby Cannavale was um he was in Boardwalk Empire as one of the bad guys. He was in Blue Jasmine, the Woody Allen movie. Uh, okay. He's an actor you've seen. He's like a Sopranos tough guy. Okay. But he's got like a name now. And well, John. John Barenthal is going to be the Punisher in uh, the Netflix Daredevil, and you know, God, he was wonderful in Walking Dead. Is the was the deputy? Yeah, but I'm, I'm not Dead. talking about the stars. I'm talking about what's happening well, but now. Is that supporting. is that the 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 the, the, the supporting act, the back actors in the oh, background 
that in past movies would have gone to relative unknowns are now going to, you know, Judy Greer is the ex-wife of Ant-Man. Oh, she's a popular actress now. Oh, absolutely. So, sure. so I was really sort of impressed by, wow, they're Amen. really getting, like, everybody obviously now wants to be in these movies. Well, when Redford showed up in Winter Soldier. Yeah, that was that's- great cast. That floored me, and it was wonderful, and it was such. And I was like, "Oh, I'm sure it's a cameo," and it's like, "No, it's not." Yeah, it was a pretty mean. Yep, absolutely, man. No, and and uh, Jenny Auditor from American Werewolf in London as one of the uh, as one of the World Council right, kind of right, right. shadowy figures and stuff. No, it's uh, you're right. No, a- absolutely. And also, I just saw a, a video of Mike Doug- Michael Mike Douglas Michael Douglas talking about how uh, they're like, "What interested you in doing?" Um, an anime movie. He's like, are you kidding me? He's like, I've been wanting to do a superhero movie since my buddy Jack Nicholson was the Joker. He goes, yeah, he goes, I was just hoping somebody would ask. So when Marvel came, it's like, finally. Yeah. And so that's cool. And, you know, that's, that's yeah, listen, Michael Keaton, no. uh, Michael Keaton, Michael Douglas is great and he was good. Cool. Yeah, it was a good movie. Paul Rudd was good. And, you know, yeah, it was, you know, uh, I, it was I, very I, enjoyable. And- I'm a big Paul Rudd fan. And that's why I was, you know, like, cause I, it's weird it's so funny. They don't know what to make of it because it won the weekend, but it only it only made fifty eight million dollars. And it's like, yeah, because it was up against Minions. Jurassic Four is still it's doing Jurassic amazing. Doing we, li- well. we live in a time now where a movie is really only judged on its opening weekend. It's really, I mean, it's really yes. like the Hunger Games for pop culture. It's like. Yes. They throw these things. It's like, God forbid, if you... And again, you look at the history of things on television, say, that needed time to develop, like Seinfeld. And, right. You know, you look at things that, oh, so they, they did, you know, Rocky Horror Picture Show, a big opening weekend. But you know what I'm saying? It's like, it's like this idea. It's like Gladiator. They're thrown yes. in, and then if they don't perform, they're considered failures. I mean... It's it's really like like sink or swim being thrown into the deep end of the pool. It's unfair to the art form itself. It's unfair right. to all the actors and creative people that Certainly. take these things to be judged so harshly on a pure money making. Yeah, it, it, it's just as an artist and a creative person, I find it repellent that 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 a work of sweat and toil would be thrown into a ring like that. It's just disgusting. No, I agree, man. I agree. Well, let's wrap up because yeah. you've been generous with your time and it's late uh, New York time. John, but, I can but, talk but... to you all night long. <laughs> no, I appreciate it, man. And I No, great information. Uh, I urge people to go, again, the name of the club, the, type, the typography no, club. No, no, is... it's called the Type Directors Club. Okay. TDC.org, I think is their site. Okay, and email them, and we'll have links as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so that you'll be able to see the, the Irish Snap exhibit. If you're going to the Connecticut Con in August, you can I'm going to send you uh, links, John, when we hang up. I'll send you links okay. to all my yeah. things that are upcoming. Uh, Garden State Comic Fest next week. Uh, I think it's September. I'm at the uh, newer con convention. In September, I'm doing my Jews and Comics lecture of 90 Seconds to okay. Why. So, yeah, I got you know some things coming up the rest of the summer and early fall. Excellent. So, so Arlen is on tour, and, uh, and get, oh, your, yeah. get your get your satin jacket that says Schumer on tour. Yes, I love that idea. <laughs> Arlen on tour. It's true, absolutely. Sunday, no, Sunday. I, 
Always interesting information, Arlen. I, I thank you for making me aware of uh, Virus Snap, and uh, hey, pl- you, you, got a, you got a good story to tell. I only wish you'd come to New York to see the exhibit live. Yeah, I, I, I won't make it till uh, till uh, till the con. Yeah, till the con in October. Just misses. Too bad. I know. Sure I know. But that, that story of my life. That's all right. But that's the beauty of New York. There's always something else to see if you miss something great. So, but uh, thanks for your time tonight, and uh, looking forward to seeing you in October. I love you, man. I'll talk to you soon. That's Arlen Schumer, and that wraps up today's Word Balloon. I hope you enjoyed it. Come to wordballoon.com and look for the links to uh, Arlen's presentations and more information if you want to see that uh, Irish Snap exhibit. And uh, let's remind you, too, to come to wordballoon.com, and you can learn a bit more about the League of Word Balloon listeners. Uh, they are my listeners, that, uh, and you're a part of that, that uh, help support me through Patreon. If you'd like to subscribe to Word Balloon, if you can spare a dollar a month or a little bit more, that's great. Uh, just go to wordballoon.com. There's a video there explaining uh, how Patreon Patreon works. And uh, thank you for your support, League of Word Balloon listeners. I appreciate it. It made going to San Diego a lot easier and uh, continues to do that with uh, some other conventions that are coming up down the road. Word Balloon is also brought to you by the Cincy Comic Con happening September 12th and 13th at the Northern Kentucky Convention Center. I hope you will join me, Tony Moore, such a great lineup of creators for an excellent weekend of uh, comics conversation on the panels great opportunities in Artist Alley and the various uh, booths and uh, merchants that show up as well. It's a great convention. It really is one of my favorites. My third year running, and the reason why is it's it's a lot of fun, and it gives me the opportunity to uh, moderate these panels and uh, bring you some great programming. But uh, enjoy it live. The Cincy Comic Con, September 12th and 13th at the Northern Kentucky Convention Center. For more details, visit CincyComicCon.com. Word Balloon is also brought to you by InStock Trades at InStockTrades.com. Go there, you'll find excellent deals on all your favorite hardcovers, trade paperbacks, graphic novels, artist editions, essentials, omnibuses, all at excellent discounts. Don't forget, if your orders are $50 or more, you'll receive free shipping, and uh, you won't believe the lineup. Just go through the search base, or even just check out the front page on some of the deals. I'm sure you'll find something that will suit you at InStockTrades.com. John Sutcher saying thanks for listening again to Word Balloon. Thank you, as always, League of Word Balloon listeners. The best way you can help me out is letting a friend know that you really like the programming that you hear on Word Balloon, and they probably would too. Uh, questions or comments about the show, reach me via email, john at wordballoon.com. Follow me on uh, Facebook under my name, John Suntress, and the Word Balloon Network has a fan page. Also, follow me at Twitter. Uh, at John Word Balloon. I'm on Tumblr as well. I'm also at uh, Instagram. So uh, come see me. It's hard to miss me. And I uh, hope to see you at uh, one of the conventions coming up in the fall. I'll be at Cincy Comic Con and I'll be at the New York convention also. And, uh, you know, I thank you for if you uh, saw me in San Diego. I hope I got a chance to uh, thank you for listening to Word Balloon face to face. Until next time, Word Balloon is a copyright feature of Shaky Productions, copyright 2015. <laughs>